Yeah, he's a pretty special player. Awful good one for, the, for all the young guys from L.A. to learn, uh, learn from. Here comes Kaprizov. Drags it around. Anderson. He scores! What a play by Kaprizov! Just something right here. Great job by Spurgeon on the turnover of the blue line on Kopitar. Gets Kaprizov going the other way. Looks like Mikey Anderson's got him. And the old... Hey now, hey now, welcome to the Sportscasters Podcast, my name is Steve Bennett, and this is the 11th season of the Sportscasters, been doing this since 2011, it is Monday, April 26th, and it is a lot sooner than I planned on releasing a Sportscasters episode. And I think last time we spoke was a few days ago. I had released an episode with Keith Law from The Athletic and Devin Gordon, who just wrote a book about the New York Mets. And that was season 11, episode 7. And in my mind, the next podcast would be a 24-incher. And then we'd be back sometime in a week or so with a music, likely a music sportscasters. My plan was to put the interview I did with Paige Hamilton a while ago from Helmet with the interview I did with the authors of Nothing But A Good Time and put that out. Meanwhile, I had scheduled an interview with Neil Best from Newsday, and I wanted to talk to him about the New York City ratings book and his involvement with that, including you know, what had happened with Michael Kay. And I recorded that interview, and we talked a little bit about the draft and some real current stuff about the NHL TV rights. And I said, you know what? I'm going to put that up tonight. And I'll also put up, I'll pair it with the interview uh, with the authors from Nothing But A Good Time. And I'll keep saving that Paige Hamilton helmet interview for, for something. I don't know what I'm saving it for, but I'm waiting to figure out what I want to pair that with. And I'll put that out when the time comes. That one's not sensitive in any way in terms of time they're going to be here in a couple months maybe i'll put it out as that gets closer to that concert if it happens so given the way that played out here we are today season 11 episode 8 i listened back to some of season 11 episode 7 i wanted to hear how the sports media minute turned out i like that i like that segment i think that can get better got to do a drop for it this wouldn't be a show with one because we have sports media with Neil Best. So this would be a show with First Things First instead of that. The thing that annoyed me is I was listening to some of that Devin Gordon interview. And my God, my breathing. I sounded like Tony Soprano eating a bowl of ice cream. I wanted to slam my face into a wall. Oh, awful. Hopefully it didn't bother you as much as it bothered me. But oh, I was disgusted with myself. So, typical Steve stuff dragging the show down, uh, as always. Uh, this is what we're going to do today. We're going to do, first thing first, in a second, I want to talk about the NHL media rights deal a little bit more before we bring Neil Best in. And I do want to mention that when I recorded with Neil, 
this morning, everything was happening fast. And the report was, as we mentioned, that NBC was out and that it was going to be Fox that was going to get that part of the bid, not Turner. So keep that in mind. That was the reporting at the time when we recorded. Obviously, since it's Turner. I'll get into that in a second. Uh, we'll do f- first things first, and we'll take a break. We'll do the Neil Best interview. We'll come back with the book club. I had said that we had cleared the book club out. We need a new books. Two authors contacted me. We'll talk about who they are and what their book is, as we now have two new books for the book club. And then the second of the two interviews that I did last week, uh, book club related, Tom Bojour and Richard Beanstock, Nothing But a Good Time, The Uncensored History of the 80s Hard Rock Explosion. I did an hour with them. It's an awesome book and an awesome interview. And then we'll be back for one last thing. I want to talk a little bit about sharing the things I love with Paula. Uh, That will be one last thing. But quickly first, before we get to that, uh, first things first, I want to talk about the NHL who has sort of officially um, got their rights deals sorted out. And it was reported a while ago that the A package uh, would be no longer on NBC, who's been their partner for 10 years, I believe, uh, or 11 years. They won't be the partner anymore. They're done. They're out. And that the A package would be taken over by ESPN and ESPN Plus and ABC. Uh, So all that part was announced. Uh, NBC, uh, they were paying about $200 million a year to be the exclusive partner. Uh, Now the NHL, and a lot of these numbers and stuff are according to Andrew Marchand, our friend from the New York Post, who did a lot of reporting on this today and did a really good job on it. But the NHL will now be paid around $625 million per season with ABC, ESPN, and Turner splitting the games and, most importantly, the Stanley Cup. Uh, Turner's deal is less than ESPN's. Sources say Turner, TNT, and TBS will pay in the neighborhood of $225 million plus per season over the next seven years, while ESPN's number is around $400 million per year and includes an extra cup and the out-of-market subscription rights. The full extent of ESPN's agree- or Turner's agreement is not yet known and very likely includes its streaming service, HBO Max. Um, so that means this, basically. That means that Hockey Now will not only be on ESPN, ABC, and ESPN Plus, you have to also now throw in there TBS, TNT, and HBO Max. Uh, CBS is not a part of this deal at all. Uh, So all of the B programming, if that's the way to put it, will be on TNT, HBO Max, and TBS. Uh, there's seven year. It's a seven-year deal. Four of the Stanley Cups will be on ESPN, ABC, and three of them will be on uh, TNT's version of it. Uh, the really nice thing about this overall is that ESPN Plus will include 
1,100 out-of-market matchups that were formerly on NHL TV, and that was an expensive package. Now it's just part of ESPN+, Plus, uh, which, is, which is really great for 5 bucks a month or whatever you pay for that. I don't pay any. I, mine is just bundled in with D- Disney+, Plus and Hulu, which obviously Disney+, Plus, Paula, and Tammy enjoy that, so we have it regardless. Uh, NBC's in the final year of their deal, so that means this all starts next year. So starting next year, we will have the NHL no longer on NBC. The downside, I feel for Kenny Albert here. Uh, Kenny Albert's one of the best play-by-play hockey men in the world. Uh, With the departure of Doc Emmerich, my thought was, wow, this is going to be great for Kenny. He'll get the All-Star game. He'll get the Cup. He'll get the Winter Classic. All that stuff. And now... He currently does not work for a network that has a hockey package. That doesn't mean that can't change, and I would expect it to. The interesting thing about this on the TNT side is they're not in hockey at all. So presumably they'll have to build their their group of people from the ground up. And they have one of the all-time great NBA pregame shows. And that was a big negative at NBC. They could never get that right. If TNT can find a way to put anything even close to what they do with inside the NBA, that would be amazing for hockey. Uh, Some more from Andrew Marchand's thing. Now, my friend Peter Winston, who I do the Adams Division podcast with, is furious about this deal, and I'm not quite sure why. Um, But here's what this does for uh, for the NHL. First of all, they got a lot more money, right? They did a really great job uh, money-wise. Uh, second, they have spread out a little bit. You know, before they're just on NBC. Now they're on ESPN, TNT, all the different things I've said. And being on ESPN, look, at ESPN treated hockey like it didn't exist because they didn't broadcast it. And presumably now that they do broadcast it, it will be a lot more important. Uh, Marshawn goes to speculate. Who will call these games? Uh, Doc Emmerich retired, he says, we know. Uh, NBC hasn't said who's going to call it this year, but he would put his money on Kenny Albert. So would I. Uh, Turner doesn't have any uh, NHL folks. Uh, Marv Albert has called NHL games before, but he's at the tail end of his career. Uh, Marshawn speculates that maybe Kenny Albert and Brendan Burke will be number one play-by-players. And Eddie Olchek will be wanted, we'd presume. Um, He says, Turner should avoid trying to be too cool for school with the NHL shows as it outslicked itself with Champions League soccer that had Steve Nash miscast as an analyst, among other issues. So we'll see about that. The thing that Pete doesn't like about it, I think, is the streaming stuff. Uh, He says, Marshawn says, the NHL got its money, and guess what? Its fans will have to pay more if it wants all their team's games. The ESPN deal does put Stanley Cup on free TV with ABC for four of the seven deals. However, for all of your local team, you'll need cable and ESPN Plus subscriptions. 
Meanwhile, you'll need cable with TNT and TBS, but there's very likely an HBO Max component, so there's another monthly subscription for hockey fans. I didn't consider that because I have it already. It's a must, must for me with Sopranos and The Wire on there, not to mention any new content. So that's where we're at right now. This isn't official official, uh, but all the reporting is there. When it is official official, we'll get more numbers and a better idea of what this is. But I would say overall, good job for the NHL. Number one, you're back on ESPN, which I think is huge. Uh, you need ESPN to acknowledge your existence, and they're only going to do that if they're broadcasting your game. So I think that's good. Uh, TNT is interesting. I didn't consider them until I heard their name. Uh, I didn't consider them at all. So we'll see uh, where that goes. But I'm not upset about it. Um, and look, at they're going to be they're, they are going to be in the streaming business. And if that works out really well, they can say they're the innovators, right? They're kind of first to the table there. The NFL is so locked in uh, with networks; they get so much damn money for it. I mean, the NHL is going to have a real great chance to kind of set the bar of what happens with online uh, sports streaming being one of the main ways um, that league games are distributed. So we'll see how this works out for them. The money's great. You know, $200 million, They more than doubled it. They split it in two and more than doubled it. You can't. You can't deny that Gary Batman and, and company did a good job there in terms of the money they brought in. You know, Peter, like myself, we're older hockey fans. Younger hockey fans love online. The hope is maybe Bleacher Report, which is also owned by Turner. Maybe that gets more focused. They haven't had a hockey writer since our friend Dater was their hockey writer. You assume that would change. They focus on hockey more. Another thing that can't be bad for it. All right. With all that said, we're going to take a break. Like I said, Neil Best is next. Keep in mind, at the time we talked, the reporting was that this second part of the league's deal would be on CBS, or excuse me, Fox. And we speculate about Joe Buck, who obviously uh, won't be a part of this. Oh, very last thing about hockey. I hope one of these two networks finds a way to have Gary Thorne call in hockey games again. That would be great. All right, we'll take a break. We'll be right back with Neil Best. Our first guest today is a longtime guest of the Sportscasters podcast. He's a Cornell graduate, a really great person. And he writes about sports media for New York Newsday. A warm sportscaster's welcome to Neil Best. Hey, Neil. How are you? Hi. Welcome back. I'm good. I'm good. Thanks for having me. How have you uh, dealt with the uh, loss of Cornell hockey? I mean, it was a devastating time for college hockey to stop when it did a year ago. Because Cornell was, I mean, the top team in women's and men's hockey. Look poised yeah, I to mean, make a run. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, look, obviously I have to preface it with saying I realize there's more important things in the world, um, like people's health and jobs and stuff. But in, in, in sports in sports terms, yeah, I mean, it's like literally the only team I root for since I don't root for any pro teams anymore. It's like, and I felt bad for the kids, obviously. Absolutely. Uh, that, they, that, that they're number one in the country and then to 
But the more, I mean, it was that, that stunk, obviously. And I, I, I would hope to maybe put a banner up saying, you know, number one in the country for that season because sure. there is no national champ. Yep, they're the uh, final number but, one you know, in the to, final poll. Yep. Yeah, and then yep. every time I watched a college hockey game this year, I was like, wow, now it just kind of rubs it in. Well, that I, was a disgrace. Yeah. Ivy League, that's a disgrace decision. I'm sorry. It's a disservice to I, their, the students I, and the teams. <laughs> I basically agree with you. Um, I but what's going to be a very interesting story moving forward in the next five years is how it affects recruiting. Because I mean, uh, I think it, you know, I think what people forget is that you know, yes, Ivy League sports, most Ivy League sports are are you know kind of a activity, and they're even though they're good athletes, they're 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 sports aspirations are going to end but not hockey not hockey these hockey players are professionals i mean when you start messing with these guys livelihoods then how do you blame a a really a smart good hockey player from saying no that's good i'll go to notre dame i'll go to michigan i'll go wherever you know why why would i go to a place where i have to risk uh, you know you're not taking sports i mean i don't want to look i mean there was reasons for doing it i get it but but there's no, there's no question this is going to everyone else play hurt recruit hurt recruiting no I know it's yeah. it's gonna hurt and and maybe that's fine maybe Ivy League sports will just maybe Ivy League hockey will just be a a student activity instead of a breeding ground well, for that professionals would be a shame. I don't know that would be a shame I know it, well I know it would but a lot of people would think that's fine I mean yeah it's not it, it was it's it's you know whatever like i said it's not the most important thing that's happened in the last year right but we're on but a sports show we're talking kind of about depressing. sports yeah. no i know i know yeah. no, i know it was i felt bad for me as a fan i felt much more bad for the the, the athletes and the current students who didn't go to the, the games and the whole thing um so yeah it stinks well my my, my <laughs> brother my brother was a ivy league hockey player we've talked about it before and i just thought about everything that we did as a family you know everything we sacrificed you know everything he sacrificed all the work he put in going away to the ushl for two years you know right um i just couldn't imagine that you know that if they were like oh okay we're stopping your junior year you know with 10 games five games and the playoffs left and uh then we're also going to not play your senior year. I mean, it's just devastating, devastating. And then, yeah, no, yeah. And yeah. I know other stuff. I know, but we're talking on a sports show about sports, right? And then, no, but I mean, last, but at least last year they were in the same boat as everybody else, right? And this, this year, year where they were, this year was worse in a way. It was worse in a way. Yeah, yeah, I mean, everyone else played, and they didn't make any. They didn't make the hockey players weren't safer because they didn't play, right. You know, and I don't know a different right. a, diff, a, a debate well, for a different day, maybe. But it just is. And there, yeah, and there were ways to do it by making it a smaller league and having less travel, and you know, just let them play against teams that you could, uh, you know, that were just nearby. Whatever, there were ways to do it. Yeah, but, they could have played a true Ivy League schedule, you know, if they wanted. Um, you know, they could have just played yeah. ECAC games. I mean, there's no. What's the longest trip in the ECAC? Clarkson, I guess. I mean, it depends where you are, obviously, but like, yeah. I mean, all yeah, the teams are basically between you know Northern New York and yeah. I don't know, Massachusetts. Uh, I somewhere. I don't I don't know. It's going to be like I said, five years from now. It's going to be very interesting. Well, Yale has already been gutted. Yale's essentially starting over next year, right? You know, and Harvard is well, too. 
Harvard has some right. great recruits in the USHL. Harvard has a, a player who's in Chicago in the USHL who essentially set the single season scoring record because he's still there. You know what I mean? He should have been at Harvard this year. <laughs> right. But right. instead he had to go back to the USHL. He's the, only the second player to ever score 100 points in a season there. I mean, he's going to be a – I mean, maybe it will work out timing-wise pretty decent for Harvard, but I know Yale will be scrambling. You know, they lost so much in the transfer portal because everyone who was already at Yale was like, well, no, I'm not just going to wait around. I got to go. I got to play, especially the best players, sure. you know, so. Oh, of course. It will be interesting to see, and it's too bad because, you know, Yale had won a national title in 2013. You know, Harvard had been to a uh, Frozen Four, I think, in what was it, 2015 or 16, whatever year it was. They made the Frozen Four, 17, mm-hmm. whatever year it was, recently. Uh, and Cornell, you know, was knocking at the door. Uh, when the um, when it was shut down, so it's a it w- you know I don't know if it's the golden era per se of um, Ivy League hockey, but certainly an incredibly high national presence from Ivy League teams, and you know I think a lot of them are going to be back at square one, and you know who knows if if all the Ivy League programs survive it. I'm pretty sure Harvard and Yale will, and Cornell will. Um, mm-hmm. I think Princeton will. Dartmouth should, I guess. Dartmouth, I don't know. I don't know. But we'll see. Sports media. Let's right. let's let's start with the ratings for a second cuz Sure. It's they're they're interesting in the sense that you know, they're they're almost everyone's almost like sometimes I feel as ratings fatigue, yet the hysteria around them has created this thing where we look at them monthly even though they're not monthly you know what i mean it's like we could just wait quarterly like like the monthly thing doesn't matter but it's become such a thing especially during the i think it built up during the france when when uh mm-hmm. michael k was tra- chasing francesa down you know what i mean it's like because then it was like oh i wonder if we'll get him this quarter well let's see let's take a look after a month see where it is and now it's still been like a monthly thing but Really interesting in the sense that the first full book, um, Carton goes from prison to the air and puts Michael K back in second. What were your impressions about the first full book? And do you think, this is the important thing, do you think if Michael K had started at two for the whole book, if it would have been different? Um. Well, okay. So first of all, the, the reason we started doing the monthlies is that um is because of the massive interest in this stuff which is which is which is absolutely incredible um so last week just to give you an example and this was true you know i thought it used to be a francesa phenomenon but carton has sort of picked up the baton last week you had um you know nfl drafts coming up yankees were a disaster knicks were winning eight or nine games in a row mets and yankees you know mets were doing whatever all you know, a very busy time in New York sports, right? The, by far, the number one story on our website last week was my little story on Monday about Carton beating K in the ratings. Yep. By far. Yep. Which is complete insanity. Um, that's why we're doing it every month because yeah. this stuff is catnip for our editors uh, and readers, obviously. So, um, as far as whether I was surprised, I mean, we saw this coming because what, what's happened basically now is. Cardin's had four full months, and in each of those 
he's done better every single month relative to K since he started. So the biggest gap he's had yet was in March. So this was, um, I, I mean, if you'd ask me when this thing started, I, I guess I'd be surprised that it happened this fast. But once we saw what was happening in November and then in January, right, it was going it, that way. It was it was coming this way. So he beat him by 0.5 for the quarter, but he beat him by 1.1 in March. So obviously the trend is going that way. It's going to be very hard for Michael to get back. You know, get back. Um, but you, you mentioned the 2 p.m. thing. I do think that was a very smart move by them. Um, and I do think it will help, uh, you know, first of all, for that one to two o'clock hour, Carton was demolishing the competition. And now it's a little more of a apples to apples. It's, we can compare their entire shows, you know, basically their entire shows. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I do think it'll help. Uh, I do not think he will be Carton in the spring though, simply based on the trends that we've been seeing. Um, you know, the other interesting thing is that both both of those shows have more competition against each other than the other parts of the day. So, for example, in the morning, where FAN wins by a three to one ratio over FAN beats ESPN by like a three to one ratio, but if but if you take the the numbers and add them together for the two stations, it's very similar in the morning and the afternoon. So the total audience of people listening to these shows is very similar uh, between the two channels. It's just that. You know, the afternoon's a lot closer. So. Right. Yeah, it's interesting because I don't live in New York City. I do live in the state of New York, but I don't live in New York City. I never yeah. lived in New York City, and I can't get enough of this stuff. You know what I mean? So I don't know. <laughs> it's, that's even weirder. Yeah, yeah. no, I know. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> It's, you know, and people used to think of it as like, oh, you know, Francesa, maybe he's sort of a little bit of a national or at least a regional figure, but he's gone. And it's this phenomenon is still going on. It's, it's very strange. And every time we write, it's not just ratings every time we write. Okay. So here's another example on uh, last week, our sixth most viewed story of the week. And this story never even appeared in print. On Monday night, Jerry Seinfeld went on with Steve Summers yeah. for like half an hour. And they'd had a little mini feud, so it was kind of a, you know, Jerry going back on FAN was his thing. And I listened and I wrote up a few, you know, a few graphs about what he said, no big deal. And that was our sixth most viewed story of the week. Again, this is an era, you know, we've got news going on with literally every New York team right now. And it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. <laughs> All right, now speaking here's the thing. Speaking of stories you wrote, and let's do this now because we're kind of talking about Michael K. So earlier in the spring, setting this up in case everyone doesn't know. Early in the spring, Michael K and John Sterling did a Yankee game together. Mm-hmm. They obviously had they used to do it then. I guess one went to TV. You know, Michael K is on TV now on Yes and um, yeah, showings they, they on the radio, together. right? But they used to be together. Right, they were together like late nineties. Yeah. So now they're back together for this one game, and you're going to do a story on it. And you talk to Sterling, I guess, whatever. And mm-hmm. then you go to reach yeah. out to Kay, and he says that he won't talk to you. You know what? I'll get it into more of what he said on the radio. But I'm curious, since you're on in the moment, first of all. Did you expect that, or were you kind of really taken aback when the request was turned? Let's start with just the request being turned down, and we'll get to what he said on the radio. No, no, but I, no, what were the I, mechanics no, behind the scenes of it? No, I mean, the mechanics are, no, I knew he was going to turn me down. Oh, you did know that. Okay. That, he's made that a policy in recent years. However, 
because I have nothing against him, no matter what he thinks, uh, I have an obligation journalistically to give him the opportunity. There sure. was one feature I did a few, two or three years ago about long time, all the longtime baseball announcers in town, and the Yes Network kind of convinced him to do it. But for the most part, he just says no. And, um, you know, I've been, if you count high school and college, I've been doing this for 45 years, and he's the only person who's ever not talked to me on the grounds that he doesn't think he'll be treated fairly. But whatever. Well, yeah, we'll get into that. But, no, but I mean, I, I had, a, I had, I always, every time there's a story that he would be relevant for, which in okay. this case, obviously, so you he would knew be, he'd turn it down. I, I asked. I knew he'd turn it down, but okay. I had to ask. And then, but one, but then uh, I, uh, but then I also have to include in the story that he turned me down. Otherwise, I look kind of silly because a reader might say, "Well, right, what, like you didn't reach out. Weird. Why didn't you talk to both of them?" Sure. So that was all. I didn't think anything. Well, I mean, I, I knew he wouldn't be happy with it, but I don't. I don't, I don't, I, I don't care. I don't, I mean, I'd rather talk to him than not talk to him because my readers might be interested, but I don't, I'm not personally offended. Sure. Well, he's, he, you know, Mike, Michael admittedly, he's, he admits this about himself very thin has skin. very thin skin sure. and I am the opposite. I just don't care. So, you know, I, I wish he would have talked to me because I think my readers would like to hear from him. But other than that, I don't care. Well, as a sports media nerd, I care. So then the next day or the same day, I don't know exactly, but he, for no good reason, trashes you on his radio show. Now, I know you don't follow me on Twitter, but I'm not offended because you only follow like 15 people or something. So, <laughs> so that's 20, a, I think it's 21, right? Okay. I think it's 21 right so now. That's anyway, a, well, yeah. Yes, that's okay, but... <laughs> I had your back on this. I said, okay, I've been doing this show for 10, I had my 10 year anniversary in January and I've had a couple hundred people from sports and sports media on the show and you're just such a nice, decent guy. I, I just don't understand the venom, you know, like he looks like such a petulant little baby just comes off as so bad. I was so turned off by this. And I'm not, I, like I said, I, I I did this publicly when we weren't talking. So it's not like I, I'm I'm kissing up because people accuse me of always kissing up to the guy. No, I think I, I think I did see your comment about it on Twitter. I appreciate it. Um, so yeah, I mean, but it's yes, I do agree that he doesn't come off looking good. His friends, you know, a lot of his friends who also know me have tried to, you know, talk to him about this topic. Um, but the, the part, part of the problem is he's hurting the yes network sometimes when he doesn't do interviews because his feud with me is based on ra a radio, not really TV. Right. And, the, and what he's mad at me about is so, well, what is it? You, well, do you I know mean, exactly it, what it is? Um, I mean, it started with him believing that Mike, that, that I was, um, a, you know, aligned with Mike Francesa and against him and was treating him unfairly. But more specifically, he, he was he has been frustrated with the way I count the rate. Now this is all me surmising. He hasn't okay. really told me, he's but he's crazy. frustrated with the Everyone way I, does he's that. frustrated with the way I do the ratings with the streaming numbers. He's now, delusional. Uh, well, ESPN is just wrong about that. But but I think a key moment happened where you know the other you know Andrew Marshand of the New York Post he wrote in his column last Monday about the ratings that he had talked to independent people just like I have right. and for their everyone does it about way. what, yeah, right. And he, he, he wrote for the first time that he, you know, usually he reports the numbers both ways. 
And he said he had concluded, based on talking to people, that the proper way to do it is to include the streaming numbers. And of so course the, it is. Yes, of course it is. Well, I know it is. I know yeah. it is. But 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 now, but now Michael's argument against me, I, I guess, is an argument against everyone. Now. Right. Because so... A little bit of vindication uh, for you there. <laughs> But like, of course, well, of course, I know, I know you're not. I'm I know. Just saying, I'm just saying that yeah. the the basis of his radio frustration with me has a lot to do with the way the ratings are calculated, and I just think he's wrong. He's dead wrong. He's dead wrong. Um, of course, you would count streaming for both, and the reason he didn't want to, the reason he would conclude you wouldn't do that, is because he he needed it to win. Like in reality, he beat Francesa one time. The last book. They tied, I think, one time, and he beat him yes, the last time. Yes. Right? But if you use yes. if you use his math, he can say he beat him, you know, four or five times. So that's why he would want it to be that way. But the reality is, in my opinion, and Marshawn's opinion, in your opinion, and whoever Marshawn talked to, because Marshawn was on the show a few weeks ago, and we talked about this as well, um, he only beat Francesca one time because, of course, you would count the streaming. Of course you would. No, okay, but the only thing I'll say in his defense, because I've seen the evolution of this thing, is the first when when, when streaming first started being a thing, you know, a number, you, you know, it was the, the initial reaction was like, whoa, wait a minute, what this is that we've never used this before. What is this? Should we be using it? What do you, what do you mean you're going to add the streaming? You know, for the first like quarter or whatever. I could understand where it would be. Oh, this is a little weird. I mean, why are we suddenly including this now? But now it's been several years of this, and obviously, look, I'm 60 years old. The only time I listen to over-the-air radio is in my car. When I'm listening in my house to those shows, it's either on a stream on my laptop or on a simulcast on TV. So if a 60-year-old isn't even listening to over-the-air radio anymore, obviously... My my me list well well I don't count because I'm over fifty five but but I mean me right. me listening to the stream should count right as a person who's listening to the show of course of course he's he's insane plus right, yeah. his rating Whatever. is including the stream right because that was his I big, know I know oh my god I know he's insane it's, on it's that yes I've tried I've had this conversation with many ESPN people I'm like look I don't care and they know how it. you sell the advertising yeah. I care about which show is more popular mm-hmm. and they know it uh, I was talking to I did an interview um, a few months ago with a guy a hockey writer who you might know name and I'm gonna screw up his last name because I forgot how he told me you say it right but it's l l Strachan maybe um, a really great right. great hockey writer who was the guy that Gretzky trusted. You know, mm-hmm. he was the guy that Gretzky would call, you know, at three in the morning and say, all right, I'm ready to talk about, you know, losing to the Canadians in the final or whatever. He was the guy right. that Gretzky trusted. And I was thinking about you when I was talking to Al about this because you were the guy that Francesa trusted, especially at the end, right? You were the guy that got to drive home with him after the first last show or whatever. Yeah. yeah. You know, the and, first last show, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, first of all, it's pretty cool, I think. You know, cuz cuz as a to me, you know, Francesa and Chris and their show is the number one sports radio show of all time and the uh-huh. most important one of all time, and it's cool to have one of the main guys that, you know, you're the guy that he trusted. What a what do you think it was? Why do you think it happened that way. Was there something about you that you think? I mean, I just think you're just such a decent, fair guy 
that that's why it happened, which makes Michael Kay's comments so ironic. But what do you think? Why was it that, um, or how do you think it happened that Mike trusted you so much? I think it's, I, I would say two things, to be honest. You know, one I would like to think is, yeah, like I, I have a reputation, I hope, for treating people fairly and kind of being level-headed, and it's, you know, that's good. But but I, but in in defense of everybody else, I would say this also. Part of the problem is that in like, um, you know, in baseball coverage, we have the beat writer and the columnist, and the columnist is obviously supposed to do the critiquing, and the the beat writer is the you know playing it straight guy. Well, the problem in the in the radio co- the media coverage is that the the you know the writers have tended are more like columnists than like re- just straight reporters. So therefore, you know, there's more opportunity for guys like Francesa or Kay or Carton, you know, to get mad at everybody because everybody's critiquing them as opposed to just kind of doing more reporting, straight reporting stuff. So I think that's part of what goes on with these guys is that Francesa saw me just kind of writing stories as opposed to critiques. And therefore, he had less opportunity to get mad at me. Okay. So, so I think that's part of what happened. But yeah, I'd like to think that the bigger part is that, uh, you know, obviously for any journalist, you want to be trusted by people to treat them fairly. And if he thought that of me, then that's obviously good for me. When people would would, would tell me, uh, would complain about me talking to Francesca too often, my two answers were, A, the readers want to hear it, and B, like, what do you, like, what do you want me to do? That would be like being uh, on the Yankees beat, and and you're Not the only guy to you're talking yeah. to. Like, like what, like, like what is course. you supposed to, if Peter wants to talk to you, you're supposed to say no. Right. <laughs> like, you know. And I think that's how it was for Al Strachan and it's Strachan. I don't know why I was questioning myself on that, right. but I think that's how it was with Gretzky. I think there was a little bit of professional jealousy even, you know, from other writers because they weren't the guy that Gretzky was calling. Um, and I think it's yeah, huge I mean, for you. Yeah. I mean, Mike Francesa but, was to use a kid's term, the goat of sports radio in New York city for sure. You know, and to to be that guy, you have to. If I'm you, I'm going to that every time my calls, I'm answering and I'm writing it. You know what I mean? I and right, but the and the other thing though, I would the only other thing I would do is like to sort of defend myself sometimes. Is that again, when people would criticize me for not being critical enough of him, you know, the way we chose to cover that beat was more reporting driven than commentary driven for better or worse so therefore if you look back through the years it'd be you'd be very hard to find columns where i'm critic where i'm ripping michael k or craig carton or boomer sison or you know most of what we do on that beat is reporting more than commentary there's nothing wrong with commentary it's just not the way we've done it so you can't say i didn't criticize francesa enough unless you show me you know where i criticized everybody else (laughs) i really didn't do much of that that's just how we chose to do the beat. I'm not saying it's right or wrong. It's just how we did it. Now, when they, when they send me to do an Islanders column and they play terribly, well, yeah, it's I'm the columnist. They want me to be critical if it's appropriate. Well, you know, that piece that you wrote, like I said, I, I mentioned it, that you got to be with him after his first last right. show. I mean, that was like, that should have been in the best American sports writing that year. I mean, it was great stuff oh, came out of that. And again, people criticize me. Here's the criticize, criticism I get is that I'm too nice to the guests. I suck up to the guests. First of all, my guests are doing me a huge favor because they don't need to do this. You know what I mean? But second right. of all, like, I'm just being honest. You know what I mean? Like, I just, I love that piece. I love the work you did covering Mike. 
And part of the reason it was so good is because he trusted you and gave you great access. You know what I mean? So I don't think that that's right. You know, well, one other one other nice one nice thing about covering the media beat I talk about all the time. A guy like Francesca, all these guys, okay. You know, when you, when you're when you're interviewing people whose job literally is to talk in an interesting way, it makes it a lot easier than when you're talking to some you know 22 year old hockey player who might be from. You know, Russia right. <laughs> English is not Kako, great. Talking to like, Kako I mean, or something, right? <laughs> yeah, but, uh, well, yeah. I mean, yeah. That's, but that's not his job. His job is to play hockey. These guys, you know, Mike Francesa, Michael Kay, Craig Carton, Joe Buck, uh, Bob Costas. I mean, these guys' job literally talk. is to talk in an interesting way. Mm-hmm. So if you're the person interviewing them, it's a pretty easy job, right? <laughs> you know? Absolutely. Well, let's one more thing on this. So that not that long ago, um, Francesa again. Came on half an hour, 35 minutes with Chris on Sirius. And this is the second time it's happened recently Mm -hmm. or whatever. And both times, the second time it's happened also since he's not had a show. And both times when I listen to it, I just feel like this guy still wants to talk. He just doesn't want to work, Mm -hmm. you know? And I, I just think there's such an opportunity, especially when football starts, to go to him if you're Chris, if you're serious and say, do one hour with dog on Friday and you can do one hour. You can do your football show on Sunday if you want or whatever. Do one hour with dog and one hour. I just feel like that, you know, there's been a few times. I know they were close one time maybe to coming together when maybe Mike was contract was up. But it just right. seems like right now, if it's ever going to happen again, like now would be the time. And like Chris has already broken the broken the seal with having his son on you know maybe a francesa wants to have one of francesa's son wants to talk once in a while maybe they could do a dad and son thing once whatever like see what you can do because i feel like now is that now there's a chance now you know they're they're both alive you know which i, I know that's a weird thing to say but like we take that for granted i think sometimes that these guys are going to live forever they're not you know and i don't know what do you think am i crazy am i just am i just such a beloved fan that it's just in my heart that i'll Always, I just won't ever put it to bed. I'm always going to believe there's a chance, kind of a thing, because I know that could be it. No, I, no, you're not crazy. That's what they should do. Exactly what you just said. Now, the problem. Well, I don't know whether it's going to happen or not, but the short term problem, and I don't know the particulars of this, the exact time frame. But when Mike left Fan, oh, there no was compete? a period of time where okay. he can't. Like, I, I believe. Again, I'm not sure of the particulars that he would be allowed to go on as a guest occasionally versus a regular. So it could be that, or it could be, he's not interested. I don't know, but, but it, it's very possible that at least for like this calendar year, or again, I don't know the exact thing, sure. but there's a period of time. I don't think he's allowed to be a regular on another channel. Um, but yeah, of course, it, when, when he's free to do it, and if he, he sh- they should do that once a week would be great. One, an hour once a week. I mean, Mike could just call in from Florida or wherever he is. Yeah, they could put an ISDN anywhere. He doesn't even have to move. Of course. Know? Yeah. No, he should definitely do it. It's good for it'd be fun for him. It's good for Chris. It's good for their fans. I mean, it's not heavy lifting, of course. But I, I have a feeling at the moment he is not allowed to do it, though. Okay. But I just and I still think though, if he was serious about it, he could go to Afan and say, "All I want to do is one hour." He could he could work that probably out. Probably so. You're you probably know? right. You're probably right. You know, I you, think yeah. that would be more like they wouldn't <laughs> want him to do six hours. You know, a New York City drive. Right. 
you know. But I think if right. you went to them and say, "Hey, can I do this one hour thing that's on satellite anyway once a week?" I think they, I think that with if I think in reality, if there's a will, there's a way. I think you agree with that, but I'll, no, I do. It's like when they let well, John Jastrzemski was under contract; he had a better offer or a higher paying offer, and they let right, him with go. Ringer. Because, yeah, with Ringer. You know why? Why not? Yeah. Yeah, have you listened to his New York Ringer podcast at all? I've been meaning to. No. I haven't. I've been meaning to just check it out, but I haven't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah. I have not. I sh- I should. Yeah. Um. All right. Let's do a couple other things, and I'll let you go. Uh, this probably won't air before the draft, so we'll be talk. We'll be behind a little bit. Uh, but is there anything that you're interested in in terms of the coverage of it coming up in a couple days? Here, is there anything you're watching out for or? Uh, you know, I was an NFL beat writer for 10 years. And the thing I liked least about the job was covering the draft. <laughs> the draft. Um, I, I, <laughs> I can believe that. But anyway, yeah. I, yeah. I, I mean, yeah, I mean, of course, I'm a little curious to see how Mike Greenberg will be as the new host for ESPN. Right. Although I'm sure he'll be Mike Greenberg. Like, it's not going to be some revelation about the guy where everybody knows him well. So that's not going to be. I mean, of course, it'd be nice to see the draft looking more like normal instead of being in Roger Goodell's basement. Um, although yeah. that was sort of an interesting novelty, but we don't want to see that every year. Right. Once um, enough. But yeah, boy, I, I miss a lot of things about being an NFL beat <laughs> writer, that, huh? but the draft, the draft is absolutely not one of them. And Sorry. it goes out. The draft season just goes on forever. Yeah. I can't, I oh. just, well, you talk about, talk about, talk about carton generating web traffic. The only thing that always beats WFM mock stories is mock, mock, mock draft. Drafts. Yeah, I know. And Nick Klopsis does a great job. Where he's our mock draft guy. As soon as he posts his first one in like December, it's immediately the number one thing on the site. Yeah, they go. On, that just goes on forever, though. Before we before we sign on, John Arland wrote reported uh, Sports Business Journal that NBC's out in terms of NHL rights. So that's going to be the end of an era there. Um, yeah, that's yeah, that's not a shock, but it is. A, I mean, you know what? They, they 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 did well to me. They did well. By they were the a NHL good partner. Yeah, they were years. a good partner. Yeah. yeah. Um, and they picked they, and, when they yeah. jumped in. I don't know that there was a lot of people looking to give the the NHL a billion dollars to jump in. You know, I think that they were. Yeah, a there's no question. The yeah. NHL, the NHL is a more attractive television product now, now than, it than it was 15 years ago. So you have to give NBC credit for how it treated the NHL. Um, but, you know, stuff happens, I guess. <laughs> it's just business. Well, there's some reporting now. I can't remember who reported it, but very recently, some reporting that Fox could be the team that jumps in. I think it was one of the uh, insiders, the Hockey Night in Canada insiders, ironically, since I mentioned one earlier, reported that Fox is likely in on this. And that's an, that's really interesting from a sports media beat, because it just makes me think, like, would Buck call games? I don't think he would, because I know how much he loves being a fan, but would he? Um, right. And also just, you know, they, we've seen this before, uh, and it didn't work out spectacularly with the puck, the glowing puck, which is what everyone thinks, and the big robot. But what do you think about if it is Fox, and it, that would mean it'd be ESPN is the A, Fox is the B. How do you think that would work, work out? What do you think about that possibility? I mean, the thing, well, first of all, I, I think it would be fine. I, I mean, the thing about the announcers is that you know, hockey is almost like a sport, sort of like tennis or golf. Some of these specialized sports where, where these announcers tend to go from back and forth to network. So, for example, I mean, Kenny Alberts, one of 
NBC's top guys, but of course he's also a Fox guy. So right. Fox would probably and just he's great. Say, oh, do hockey for us? And he's great. I mean, it's at like hockey. John McEnroe. It's like John McEnroe works for every network in the world. It's like <laughs> once you're, so I would like to see Kenny get that opportunity. Yeah. Well, I'd like to see him get the opportunity with NBC this year. Yeah. Uh, to do the final, but um, anyway, the the um, yeah, I th- I frankly I think Fox would be fine. The the interesting thing about the the interesting thing about the NHL starting next year is exactly how this works and how many people are going to get ESPN plus to watch the games. And like, it's going to be a whole new world. I mean, in theory being with ESPN is good, but, but you know, it's going to, it's going to require people to watch a lot of games on ESPN plus and we'll see it. We'll see how that works. The ESPN plus part of it will be a godsend for fans of our out of market teams. You know, you won't need to buy a package anymore to see every, you know, Boston Bruins game if you live in Florida, which will be great for those fans. Um, And yeah, I I think that the NHL because it's you know in a lot of ways the NHL the NHL has less to lose just because it's um, it makes sense for the the NHL to be the first major league to to go in that direction because the NFL just has just too much at stake. Well, they're doing obviously Amazon on Thursday nights in a couple years, but. But 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 they have too they have so much more to lose from the traditional setup. And they're than so the valuable. Does. They're so valuable. Right. 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 They can't the NHL can can be a little more, you know, creative because there's just less at stake. They're, the the NFL is addicted to that network T V money. So You can't blame them when you see the numbers. And no, I can't. No, I can't. <laughs> no, I don't blame them at all. Um but yeah, in the NHL if it works out then they get the bonus of being able to say they were trailblazers. You know what I mean, too. So it's right. a it's a win win yeah. for them. Yeah. My number one request to ESPN would be you got to find a way to get Gary Thorne back, at least you know a little bit. Because yeah, I mean, I'd like to see that, but I, you know, in terms of um, like who their lead guy would be, they probably want someone younger. But which I, is fair. I, I don't. I don't. Yeah, but I don't know. Uh, you know, Long Islanders fans are very. Brendan Burke biased because NBC loves him and he's a rising star. Right. Um, but I don't know if he's a, I, I assume ESPN will want a bigger name for that role, but I don't, I don't know. Maybe they just want a good announcer. The number one play by play hockey broadcaster on television right now is Kenny Albert though. I mean, that's my opinion and I, I am biased. Yes. He's very kind to me. He's been on the show very, very many times. We text about hockey and Stern occasionally, so I will say that to people who again will mock me. But he he's the best <laughs> at it. He is. I I don't disagree with you. I mean, again, I, yeah, I, w- I would like to see him do the finals for NBC this year, and then for Fo- at least Fox. I, again, I don't know what ESPN is going to do, but for Fox, he's a, he's obviously a natural. That's a natural move for them. All right, sportscasters here finishing up with Neil Best, who's always been so kind as well. To be on the show, he's on Twitter at SportsWatch. Uh, don't expect to file back, though. It keeps those numbers low. 21, that is correct. So 21. I deleted, I deleted Facebook in 2016. I keep the Strong move. followers yep. low. Yep, yep. I just, yeah, it's good to have a simple life. I understand. You just recently got an <laughs> HDTV, right? You're on your... Well, your... Not, well, no, wait, well, it's not that recently anymore, but yeah, <laughs> I just... How that, many? That was several. How big yeah. did you go? It wasn't that many years ago. What? 2015, no, 16, 17? Yeah, something like that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, somewhere in there. <laughs> not super big. No, it's not. No. no. 
Because uh, the problem was we had we had these custom made bookcases to okay. fit the, My grandma them, says the this old all monster time Sony. Yeah. And now it doesn't fit. Because it it's deep really, instead it's not, of wide, right? It's too deep. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. My exactly. grandma has this problem as well. She's also <laughs> ninety. Yeah. She's also ninety, but yes, she's oh, she's been complaining about that for twenty years. Well, since the TV started, I think I got my first one in two thousand nine. I said, "Grandma, you should get one," and she was already complaining about you know, oh yeah, the, oh Steve and the TV. They was they used to be, uh, oh, you know, gosh. they used to go way back, and now they're just a little skinny. They don't go now. They go oh wow. That's what she tells me. So, it's an old Italian lady, you know. All right, well, at least I'm old enough to be your father, but not grandfather. <laughs> yes, yeah. No. <laughs> uh, all right. The point is, Newsday, read them there, at Sportswatch on Twitter. Uh, I'll let you get out of here on this because I kept you for a lot. But what do you think, next time I have you on, what do you think the big thing to talk about will be? Like, like we just got through the rights stuff, right, with NFL. That was big for a while. Like, What do you think is the next sports media beat high ticket thing is it just the olympics and how the olympics gets covered is it you know i don't know well, what do you this, think this, it is well you know uh, well what I, now this is it's sort of sports media but it's more specifically sports journalism because that's what you Fair. know selfishly i care about the yep. mechanics of my job but I, I am very interested to see six months from now six months to a year from now how it's going to work with covering these games because I think we're not going to keep doing them by the inter- post game interviews by Zoom forever. I, I hope, hope not. But 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 my my theory is that they're going to go back to in person interviews with like um, you know interview interview room podium you know that kind okay. of stuff. Yeah. But but I I I am very skeptical about when we're going to be allowed back in those locker rooms if ever. Uh, because you know, forget COVID. I mean, what, now that people have thought about it, it's like, well, wait a minute. Why do I want twenty reporters standing around, you know, Jacob Degrom yep. to give him the flu or to give him a cold or to give him, you know, whatever, or I just mean, to bother him and have a front page story well, we're not going to like or well, whatever, right? See, but yeah. that that's the problem. See, right. the players don't want. They, they've never liked us in there. Yeah. But now you could use health as an excuse, and uh, you you conceded the ground post COVID. Yeah, you conceded the ground. Right, that, that yeah see that that's very interesting to that me. is a year from now yep. my prediction is I, i'm not rooting for this but my prediction is that we will go back to interviewing athletes in person but on podium but but not at not at their locker right yeah you could be right and that is really interesting i remember my my grandfather he's passed away but he was in he was like in the in the nra and i was real interested about it because i didn't know he, he didn't own a gun he had never had a gun i never heard him talk about a gun so I asked him, I said, Grandpa, why are you so into the NRA? You're not into guns or anything. He said, well, it's not about guns. It's about rights. And he's like, when you give it away, when you give a right away, you never right. get it back. And I know this isn't right. right. This is a different discussion. But I think it's like that in the sense that the media has given that back. And it's going to be really hard now to get it back from the teams. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like that as soon as that ground was given up, and obviously it had to be with right reasons. We get all that, but. Right. Now the teams right. are going to say, "Oh, I don't know if we need to go back to that." You know, we got a we got an opening here. Yeah, that's really interesting. And it's 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 okay. And by the way, it's okay to not have us in locker rooms as long as you have some mechanism for talking to players somewhere else. You know, it's like right. as long as we can talk to them, I'd rather not be in the locker room. Sure. So, well, I think about I'm a big Saints fan, and I don't know if you remember a few years ago when when Alvin Kamara was a rookie. So I guess this is the 2017 season. 
uh, Kamara and Mark Ingram, their locker rooms were their lockers were next to each other. And after the games, they would always do everything together, all the media together. Right. You know, they're like the running back tandem. They do all this together. And it's like such great stuff came out of that. You know, like the the personality of Alvin Kamara was this really shy guy. Like being able to be next to Ingram, it came out of him that way, you know, and, and we got to learn about Kamara and what a great kid he is and what a great player. And I just think of that and it's like it'd be a shame because if, if his rookie year might have been the COVID year, who knows if you ever get to really know Alvin Kamara. You know what I mean? So, yeah, right. you don't right. love to go in there, but sometimes when you go in there, you know, you get something like that. You know, this special fall yeah. of these two guys together and doing everything together. So, yeah, it would be disappointing, I think, for fans and for the media as well because it won't be as good. There, There's something to it. But, all right, I kept you long enough. I appreciate you. Thank you for this. All right, no problem. Always happy to be on. Yep, we'll talk again soon. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Tall, could have used a few pounds. Tight pants, points, hollering down. She was a black haired beauty with big dark eyes and points all her own, sudden way up high. Way up firm and high. I pass the cornfields when the woods got heavy. I want to thank Neil Best. For being on the Sportscasters today. I always appreciate Neil. Enjoyed that. All right, first thing. When we last talked, we had cleared the deck in the book club. I had aired the interview with Devin Gordon and told you that I had recorded the interview with Tom Bojor and Rich Beanstock, which you will hear in a minute. And I said, We need books. And one of my favorite things happened this week, and that's one, not one, but two authors reached out to me about featuring their book on the Sportscasters. And I have a policy that whenever an author reaches out to me, I absolutely accommodate them and feature the book. So we got two. The first, Cobra, A Life of Baseball and Brotherhood uh, by Dave Parker. And Dave Jordan. Now, this book is about the career of Dave Parker, who I remember most for being part of the Oakland A's teams with the Bash Brothers. Uh, But he's probably most known for his time with the Pirates. Overall, he's a seven-time All-Star, two-time batting champion, gold glove winner, the 1978 National League MVP. He won a World Series with the Pirates and the A's in 89. And uh, this book is written between Parker and Jordan. I don't know who will be on. We haven't discussed that yet. I don't know who, whether it will be Jordan or if we'll get to talk to Parker or both. I'm not sure. Haven't got that far, but that's the first book that will be featured. Uh, The second book I I heard today uh, from a man named Pete Croato. Haven't confirmed that pronunciation yet, but his book is called from Hang Time to Prime Time. Uh, and it's a, a basketball book. 
and it's got a really cool cover with a guy who's got like a TV on his head. And uh, I was in, what's the bookstore called? I was in uh, Barnes and Noble looking at books this weekend and I saw this book and thought, oh, that could be, that could be something interesting. And then, you know, now I look and I got Peter has hit me up on on Twitter and I said, absolutely, you know, it's funny you reach out because I had just seen your book uh, in the um, in the store. So I already have a, a PDF of the of the Cobra book and Peter says he'll be mailing me a book uh, shortly tomorrow and I will get them and I will read them and then we will uh you know we'll do the thing that we do here on the show and we will plug these books as best we can we'll read them promote the authors and then we'll do the interviews so again the first book is Cobra it's by Dave Parker and Dave Jordan about the career of uh, baseball player Dave Parker Parker who won a world series with the A's and the Pirates and then Peter Croata, Croato, oh, gonna have to learn that one. From Hang Time to Prime Time is the name of the book there. And uh, it says it's business, entertainment, and the birth of the modern day NBA. So we'll see what that's all about. As much as I don't love basketball, I often very much enjoy a good basketball book. Some good examples of that, of course, are The Last Great Game. What else? Dream Team. We've had some really good... Oh, Jeff Perlman's books about the Lakers. We've had some really good basketball books in the 10 years of the sportscasters. All right, with that said, speaking of the book club, we're going to take a break. When we come back, the authors of Nothing But a Good Time, the uncensored history of the 80s hard rock explosion. Their names are Tom Bujor and Richard Beanstock. They'll be on the podcast next, and this interview is as fun as the music is, and I can't wait for you to hear it, and after, I'll be back on the other side to shut this thing down with some plugs, and one last thing. All right, let's take a break. We'll be right back. Our next guests are now New York Times best-selling authors, and their awesome book is called Nothing But a Good Time, like the song we're rocking here, The Uncensored History of the 80s Hard Rock Explosion, a warm sportscaster's welcome for the first time to Tom Bojour and Richard Beanstock. Tom, Richard, thank you for joining me. How are you guys doing today? Doing great. Doing Thanks good. for having us. Uh, Tom, where are you in the uh, the United States of America today? 
I am in uh, near Woodstock, New York. Oh, okay. We're not that far I'm away. In the same state as you, but yeah. not very close by. But not that far, right? I mean, not that far. What, just jump on the ninety. Yeah, about three hours down the ninety. Uh, and uh, Richard, you're in Colorado. You said right. I am. Yes. And we all have snow, right? In April. I do not have snow. <laughs> no snow, snow in Woodstock. Week, I'm about to have. Yeah, I'm about to have wicked thunderstorms. Apparently, the alerts are telling me. Oh, well, that's no fun. You missed out on the snow. We got like almost three, four inches out here in Buffalo. Oh, yeah, wow. same out here. We've had it all week. It's crazy. April snow. Is it Earth Day or something, right? So it's supposed to be. I always remember picking up the, so. the, the litter on Earth Day and beautiful weather. I don't know what happened this year. Uh, <laughs> Tom, let's start with you. When did you hook up with Richard? And think, hey, let's do this book about '80s rock. What, what was kind of the origin for you in this project? Well, Richard and I have actually we've known each other since um, I'm a couple of years older than him, and I was the managing editor of Guitar World in like 1996 and seven. And Richard came in originally as an intern, and then got hired as well. And and we so we've known each other for that long, which is like, I guess a quarter century. Um, and ever, you know, since we've known each other, we've worked on a bunch of different magazines together. Um, but whenever we had free time or probably even when we were supposed to be doing some other kind of work, the two of us would just end up talking about this eighties metal and, you know, going really deep, uh, about it. And so about, um, four years ago, um, we, you know, we were talking one day and we had, we had discussed doing the book for almost uh, probably 10 years, but we just realized it was starting to be time and we both had enough bandwidth to, to, to sort of get into it. So about four years ago, we took the dive and started interviewing people. There were, there were, there were definitely times after that where we were like, oh my God, what have we gotten ourselves into? But the story ended happily, luckily. Richard, is that how you uh, remember it? Is there anything you want to add or, or subtract from that? Um, I remember it entirely differently. <laughs> uh, no, it's, it's pretty much, it's, it's totally accurate. This is just the music that Tom and I have always um, been obsessed with our entire lives. And, and, and yeah, it was something that I think that we, we were always sort of slowly moving toward that and one day you know we just decided to take the plunge when you guys were at sorry when you guys were at magazines together were you guys like in meetings saying hey you know we should do we should see what's up with rat you know or hey we gotta you know is there any way we can get you know rachel and, and sebastian talking again for an article or you know like were you the guys in the meetings who did you notice were always coming up with these ideas that circled around this 80s era of music and did that kind of bring you together initially or kind of how did your bond start when you were both in the magazine world mm-hmm. well I mean, it, what, go ahead rich oh, go ahead tom no i was no, just gonna go. say one thing that was interesting uh was when we were both there together at the beginning this wasn't music that you really covered uh guitar world right. yeah was a huge booster of all this type of stuff, obviously in the in the late eighties and early nineties, but by the late nineties, early two thousands, like you couldn't put 
you know, George Lynch on your cover or Red Beach or any of this stuff. So, I mean, as much as it was sort of persona non grata in the wider mainstream culture, like Guitar World had a little bit of a culture still around it, but you still couldn't cover these guys. It started to come back in the 2000s. So it was really this thing where, I mean, every once in a while, maybe you get to do like something with Mick Mars in the magazine or something. But like you weren't, you weren't really talking to these guys that often. Um, so it was more like these conversations, you wouldn't, it's not even something I think that at the beginning you would even bring up like, Hey, how about we do this? And it really started to come back a little bit later on. So it was just this kind of thing between us, but also there, there were certainly other people at guitar world that were into all this stuff too. Cause a lot of these guys are, you know, guys who grew up on shredder guitarists, but it was something I think at least for me that felt a little bit more, um, it was like your own thing, really. Like there weren't too many of us, I think, out there that were that obsessed with it and or even just wanted to hear about it at all at that time. Yeah, I mean, when I started, I started at Guitar World in, in like February of 94, which is a, really just a few short years after, you know, the whole Seattle thing started. And even right. then... And look, I'm a kid who grew up. I, I have, I think, every issue of Guitar World from like 1985 on somewhere still at my parents' house. So I grew up looking, you know, getting the magazine with George Lynch on the cover, Red Beach on the cover, Nudo on the cover, and just being like, these are my guys, Vito Brada on the cover. And by the time you get to 1994, it's like that stuff never happened. Like it was Ken Fale on the cover from Soundgarden and Mike McCready. McCready yeah. So there was a complete change. So like when we, yeah, when we started like, you know, bringing that up in a meeting, you probably, that would have probably been your last meeting. Well, you know, what's interesting about that. <laughs> you know, what's interesting about that too, is I'm a huge Pearl Jam fan. I've been to 83 Pearl Jam shows. There's this great Chris Russo from Mike and the Mad Dog. I don't know if you know who you guys know who that is, but there's this quote. He says, every young boy needs a, a ball team and a, and a rock band, you know, and Pearl Jam has always been my rock band. Um, and I love McCready, and when I, I hear that, it's like, man, he had to be on the cover, but you had to be thinking, like, I'm listening to this dude, and I know he loves 80s rock guitarists. I know he does. I can hear it, you know, and he absolutely does, like, more than anyone in Pearl Jam. Like, McCready is a 80s metal guy who loves to play that music, and that's where a huge part of his influence, and of course, you know, the 70s guitarists as well, and Eddie Van Halen, wherever you're going to put him, but... You know, it's 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 like, why did those guys, I always have wondered this, like, okay, so McCready's got to be on the cover, but did that mean that you couldn't, why did that, why did that preclude his influences? You know what I mean? It seems like it's almost unique, unique in that way um, to this specific era. And we'll talk a little bit more about the way this era got kind of pigeonholed in a certain way more than say others, but. What do you think about that? It's like we, you, you guys were featuring all these guitarists who clearly were influenced by these ones that were suddenly persona non grata. I don't know, Tom, maybe you want to grab it? I mean, I'll, I'm going to grab it quickly and then I'm going to kick it to Rich because Rich actually just wrote in the new Guitar World magazine. He just did um, the cover story with McCready. Oh, yeah, but it's I a great cover this, too. But... That's a great, that's great. I love that. I have that right on my desk. I haven't read it yet, but I have it right there. But I I will say like and this is probably ninety this is ninety five maybe I remember that we did a at Guitar World a cover with Pearl Jam and 
the perception I think among bands was like guitar magazines weren't cool because like it's where the shredders had been and it wasn't cool to talk about being like a, you know, a musician. So I, I remember that cover mainly because Pearl Jam would not at the time give us a photo shoot. And so we had to like find some like kind of janky live shot to use. So <laughs> they wouldn't give Time Magazine one back, either, though. At that time, to be fair, they wouldn't. Yeah, give... <laughs> back then, I mean, there was this attitude that made it so these guys were definitely trying to set themselves apart from what it had become before and become. So it was. It was. I think that they were probably more carefully crafting. Uh, uh, maybe an image back then. Now I think 30 years down the road and Rich can speak to this. I think Mike McCready is perfectly comfortable talking about any and all of his influences. Right. Yeah. And in that, in the new issue, um, and you'll see when you read it, like he talks a lot about the fact that he, he's obviously a huge Eddie guy in the eighties. He was a huge shredder guy. I mean, he played in like an 80s style. Yeah. Shadow hard rock band. He yeah. In, into all the technical playing. And like, he's very open about that in the issue and very open about the fact. And, you know, he's not like, Oh, when I got into Pearl Jam, I just wasn't, you know, I wasn't allowed to play like that. Um, you know, Eddie and stone would yell at me if I did, it was nothing like that, but it was more just like, he's like, it just didn't fit with what was going on. So I kind of put it in my pocket, but I love all that stuff. And, and, you know, on the cover that he did in 1995, I don't know that I could be wrong. Maybe he wouldn't have even said that back then, yeah, you know, who knows, but yeah, a lot of these guys, I mean, if they, if they started playing music in the nineties and they were playing any sort of hard rock, it means at some point in the eighties, <laughs> they were, they were fans. listening yeah. to at least some of this stuff. Yeah, they had to be. And, right. and Jerry Cantrell in our book talks about how he loves George Lynch and he loves Warren D. Martini. Yeah, I have that highlighted. Allison Chains, their history. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. And like, we all know that they started off pretty glammy and like in the early days they would play show. You know, Tom has saw them play with Extreme in like 1991. So like these bands, you know, it's, but to go back to, I guess, a little bit what your original point was, like, yeah, you couldn't put them even if you were having Mike McCready and Stone Gosser on the cover of your magazine, like you couldn't even have really a smaller piece with like George Lynch. It was like, you just couldn't, there was a few years in there where they just couldn't be there at all. And I think that that is very particular to this type of music where it was like, do not speak its name. Right. And, and I I just, you know, just in fairness, they wouldn't give time. I don't think not doing the cover was because, Oh, like, you know, it's uncool to be on guitar world. I just think, you know, like they wouldn't give time magazine a cover. Um, but maybe, uh, you guys would know better than I would. Uh, it's interesting because it's like right around that time, right? Where there's a famous story where I, I will say this, yeah. without, like there, it was a part of a pattern of bands at that time being a pain about stuff like that. Like they, I will say, I, you know, that they were not alone. Pearl Jam were not alone in being like, a hassle when you wanted to do a guitar, a sure. photo shoot for a guitar magazine or something. Right. In the 90s band. Right. Um, and I know that they were united, them and Nirvana, on the No Time magazine cover front as well. So, yeah, I think, and I think that was a little bit of the, maybe the, the shtick of the genre in a way, like to be difficult and, you know, like to be, you know, that, that, that was cool, I think, in some way then. I remember living it myself, you know, like, 
for whatever reason. But, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I, I'm from the school of Eddie Trunk. You know, I have uh, loved that metal show and listened to his radio show every day. And it was great you guys got to be on. And, you know, I always try to do what he does and not call it, you know, hair metal um, and avoid that term. Because I think it does. I think it was created to be negative. You know what I mean? I think it was it, it's supposed to, to trigger cheesiness or something. And I do love the music and I try to avoid that. And I've been trying real hard during this interview to say 80s rock or, you know, hard rock from the 80s or whatever. What do you guys think about just the. The messaging in terms of the branding of the era, uh, Rich. If you want to start on that one, I think that yeah, hair metal is is obviously considered a derogatory statement. I mean, it kind of is. Like, there's nothing. I mean, you're sort of saying right there, it's like style they, over substance. Yeah, they have big hair and Spanish. Yeah, um, as far as how we approached, it, I mean, we did talk about how we were going to title this book. Um, we just, we made a very conscious decision to not use hair metal in the title, even though it is used in the book, just for, for a few reasons. One being, um, you know, there's over 200 people that we spoke to for this book and they were really great with their, you know, really generous with their time and their stories and everything else. And it's like, if they're putting that sort of trust in you and you're trying to tell, you know, their life story in a really honest and genuine way, it's, it's sort of, you know, underhanded to then slap this this title on the book that you know is going to feel derogatory to oh yeah them. yeah for sure like, there's no reason to do something like that um so there's that sort of personal connection but then also just really in terms of a practical connection um or idea you know when you look at what this music was in the 80s like this was the hard rock we call it 80s hard rock because this was the hard rock music of the 80s, it's not like there was something else going on and then on the side you had these like hair metal bands. It's like if you played melodic hard rock in the 80s with like guitar riffs but also big choruses and you were on MTV and you were, you know, selling a lot of records, like this is what the music looked and sounded like. You know, if you were like, I mean, if you were more, if you were like Metallica, I mean, you were heavy metal, but if this, if you were playing hard rock, you, you looked and sounded like these bands there was no other real option so to call it something like hair metal or even glam metal or whatever is like actually sort of narrowing the the significance of it because it was so much bigger than that like it actually it's it's the entirety of hard rock for better or worse in the entire decade do you want to jump in there on that one I think, no, I think that that was, you know, that's pretty accurate. I mean, and even look, and I, like, you can, I'm not calling us brave because that's not the point, like, like, like that would be an overstatement. Like, but being on the other side of guys getting really, like, lucky and having a New York Times bestseller with this thing, like, I was worried um, when we didn't have hair metal on the cover. I, I agree with all the reasons that we didn't. But it has become sort of like the all, for better or worse, the all-encompassing, right? Like easiest way to communicate what you're talking about. Do you know what I mean? Sure. Like that. Like if you say that, people know exactly what you're talking about. So that you know, it it was a, um, it was a conscious effort on our part. I think I, for one, was a little nervous, not like shouting out exactly what it was on the cover, um, but. I, Again, there was a respect to the artists involved. 
um, to the community and to not like be all nice to people on the phone and then, um, you know, cut them off at the knees. It's confusing though, because obviously like the biggest sort of entity playing this stuff on, on, on Sirius XM is called hair nation. Hair nation. And for similar reasons, they're doing that because there's absolute clarity in what they're delivering. You know what I mean? So, and you know, I think artists, because that thing is so gigantic and really, you know, the main thing in a lot of ways, keeping this alive, they, I guess they begrudgingly uh, accept to have that label put on them there. But I think in the case of us, you know, especially three years ago or four years ago, before we had a book deal and we're going out and asking people to like, give us an hour and a half of their time when they like the, the interview could possibly just disappear. You know what I mean? I think that there was definitely uh, an element of, of, of respect there. Cause you know, I don't think that, um, Rachel Bolin or Dave Snake Sabo or, you know, Brian Forsyth from Kicks, like, look back and, and think of themselves like, I was a hair metal artist. You know, right, right. that's not what they think. They think <laughs> I was a hard rock artist. Well, I will say that you guys got the message across in other ways with the cover, right? I mean, when I look at this cover, it looks yeah. like an 80s rock cover with the two dots over the O, reminds, you know, that triggers Motley Crue to me, you know, just the title itself that triggers Poison. You know, you got Ozzy and Randy Rhodes there. I think that's Randy Rhodes rocking. You got the guys down on the bottom. You got hair everywhere. You know, so, I mean, you told the story, the 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 neon pink. I mean, you, you said it without saying it in a way. Was that intentional, Rich? Yeah, I mean, as far as, far as the layout of the book, I mean, we, we have to give all credit to uh, the design team at St. Martin's. Which, they did great. I mean, yeah, Those guys came up. Yeah, they came up with that, and it's it's really incredible because it really, you know, and there were other ideas floating around, but this one really captures the essence of the error without also just being this kind of complete, um, you know, for lack of a better word, to use like mockery of it, the way you can see this stuff sometimes. Um, you know, it's and and actually even going back to the whole like hair metal thing, like even just you pointing out the cover, it's like yeah, you have. Ozzy on there, Randy Rhodes, you have, I mean, David Lee Roth is there. Like, these are guys, they're part of this scene, but you would also, it would be sort of odd to see a picture of Ozzy and then the word hair metal next to it. Like, it doesn't really actually fit, you know, as that, that comfortably for all of these people. So it is actually a wider, it's a wider range than, than that title would have suggested. Um, but yeah, as far as the cover, I mean, we couldn't have, I mean, they couldn't have really nailed it any better, I think, than they did in terms of, I mean, the artists that we're looking at and just the way it's all laid out. It really, you know, it looks, it looks 80s without just looking nothing but 80s, I right. would say. Yeah, they did a great job. And it was, I'm sorry, yeah, it mm-hmm. was a discussion. Like, I think I, I may have said this and I may be hallucinating that I said it, or at least I thought it. <laughs> it's like, if we're not going to have the H word on the cover, then exactly what you're saying. And I'm glad that you, I'm glad it worked. Yeah. The hair is there. All of the other graphic elements sort of communicate still what we're talking about. You know? Yeah, for sure. There's a, there's a few bands obviously that transcended the decade in a way 
you know, the bands that still got to put out albums and still play big shows in the 90s. Like, I don't know, I guess I'm thinking of Bon Jovi, Def Leppard, bands like that. Uh, but for the most part, I think the, the people that you interviewed for this, this was the best time of their life in a way. And I've always found with my show, I've been doing it for 10 years, that when I reach out to someone and say, hey, will you talk about this thing that was the best thing really you ever did in your life? They're a lot more likely to say, yeah, I'd love to do that. Then if I call them up and say, you know, hey, you want to talk to me about that one thing that was pretty shitty for you? You know, and I was thinking about that when I was reading this and I was thinking about it even more, Tom, when you mentioned you're reaching out to people and say, hey, will you do this interview, even though I don't know if it's going to be a thing? Did you find just people really eager to tell their story? And did you kind of attribute to that? It's like, hey, look, at, it might not go anywhere, but at the worst, we got to sit down and talk about the best part of your life for an hour. I mean, what could be that, right? Um, I think people, yeah, I think people once, I think these guys got so beat, guys and gals, got so beat down in the 90s that there was an element of first establishing trust. Because even if, you know, like we, once we did a couple of interviews with people. Word got out. And they realized like, oh, these these, you know, Tom and Rich know what they're talking about. We're not going to ask like the same three questions they get all the time. And that there's going to be like some depth and that we're true fans of the music. Then it started rolling. But I think we sort of had, and luckily, you know, we both had like 20 years of music journalism under our belt. So we had reputations and, and connections and stuff. But I think there was an element of us starting and then, word of mouth spreading like, oh, these guys are serious and they're not just like going to ask like, hey, do you feel like you look stupid in that video? You know, or whatever <laughs> the four dumb questions that they get on. <laughs> so there was, there is like, and um, they, are, they are excited to talk about it, but also, you know, I think they do get talk, asked to talk about it enough that sometimes you got to knock on the door a bunch of times to, you know, took me 18 months to get Sebastian Bach to do an interview. So, you know, these guys, you know, you're still asking people to do something where they're spending their time and there's no monetary, you know, they're just, they're just volunteering their time and hoping you're going to do something good with it. Have you guys heard from people that after the fact, now that it's a book where it's saying, Oh man, thanks for letting me be a part of that. That really turned out cool or anything like that. Rich, have you had phone calls like that? We have, we've heard from, a fair amount of people and that's how i mean guys like you know brett brett michaels has posted about it a lot d snyder has posted about it um you know warranty martini sent me an email about it the guys in skid row t- have talked about it um and that's like i mean that's that's something that's kind of a nice little bonus like i don't know if we necessarily expected anyone to like you know people were obviously on board with it because they did the interviews but after the fact you don't really know what's going to happen and also because they're giving their interview and then that doesn't really speak to what might be wind up in the book and like what someone else might say about them what a bandmate or or in a lot of cases an ex-bandmate that they might not even be aware is also being interviewed might have to say about a certain situation that happened you know so you you know, I think it's always, you're not, it's always in the back of your mind. Like you don't know how somebody's going to feel about the final product product. And that I know that was there for me. And it becomes more difficult also when you're talking about 200 people, 
Um, cause you don't know, like, you don't, you don't know anybody's real deep feelings about any of this stuff and how they're going to interpret what someone else might say. But at the same time, you have to tell the story honestly and as accurately as, as you can. So beyond, I would say for me, like beyond all, I mean, we've been getting great press about the book and it's been very, it's been selling very well. I mean, we were on the New York times bestseller list, which was amazing, That's sick, but yeah. seeing the guys who are in the book also really respond to it and like, you know, Scotty Hill from Skid Row wrote, wrote us an email about it. He was like, man, I can't believe, you know, there's a chapter called Garden State Music and you guys talk about all of us working there together back before the band, you know, really got going. Like, he was so, like, tickled to see this stuff in print and, like, read that part of his life in a book. That, and there were a lot of reactions like that. So that was a cool little bonus. Tom, the the book is in the oral history style, also kind of mixed in with some full length interviews. Did you guys know from the beginning that you were going to go oral history, or did you kind of get everything together in terms of interviews, and then as you started piecing it together, say, you know what, I think it would work best this way? No, we we knew starting out. Um, be, you know, I, I actually, you know, I remember we. We sort of were bouncing back and forth a little bit with what the format would be very, very early on. And then when we went to, like, we, you know, we have a friend who is also our agent, and we were talking to him. I'm like, and we were saying, you know, we're going to make a run at this. Would you shop this book for us? And he he goes, it's going to be an oral history, right? And we're like, "Um, (laughs) yeah, totally. Um, (laughs) Now it is. But honestly, it would have had to be like we, and, and sort of, you know, there's a couple of these books and I think in our like ambition, it is to like go on the shelf with them. You know, there's please kill me about the New York punk um, scene. There's the dirt. There's this book, meet me in the bathroom about that just came out a couple of years ago about the sort of alternative scene in New York in the 2000s. Um, you know, there's a couple great, there's louder than hell, which is this great all encompassing, heavy metal history and i think we wanted to be like that those are all incredibly entertaining and effective books and um the oral history format really made sense in in that way also because i think the more compelling thing about this book you know is meeting the people involved like i've been saying this a bunch but like i i can't convince somebody who reads this book to like white lion or warrant or, or LA guns or kicks. But I can, with our book, I think if you read it, you will like the people in those bands and be like, these are people who were totally serious about their craft and worked incredibly hard and like, you know, surmounted all these obstacles and you will walk away from this book with respect for the people who made this music, even if you don't suddenly start listening to Hair Nation every time you get in your car. So, and that's the format that we chose, I think was much more effective in telling that and allowing us to go into like weird specific areas and weird anecdotes that we wouldn't have been able to if we were using prose. Yeah, Grunge is Dead is another one by Greg Prado that reminds me a lot of your book or... Um, that's a similar style and, you know, tells a story in a similar way. And it's really effective. Uh, Rich, you know, that when we say eighties rock, um, 
you know, that doesn't just mean that the calendar turned to January 1st, 1980 and music started to to be this way. And I know you work, especially in the beginning of the book, kind of sto- telling the story um, of the evolution. You know, you know, Van Halen, they went from, you know, playing backyards, you know, in the 70s in L.A. And, and, and to me, L.A. is kind of the the epicenter of the scene in a way. You know, when I think of this kind of music, I think of Hollywood Boulevard and you know, I think of Guns N' Roses and Motley Crue, and I think of that area and that town. What about the origins of the music and pinning, pinning it down and how you, you told the story, kind of the birth of the scene in the book? Well, you're right. The, the, you know, the, the heyday of this music is, I mean, obviously the 80s and probably really if you're looking at it like 83 to 89 or 90. Um, but it starts in the 70s and it starts, with bands like Van Halen and, you know, with bands like Quiet Riot and Twisted Sister and on the East and West Coast. Um, and it was important to tell that story at the beginning because the, the music doesn't just form out of nothing. And, and obviously there's other influences that all these guys are pulling from. But as far as who they're seeing in front of their faces and the first kind of big band, Van Halen is, is the one um, and it's the one, the band, all the bands that come out in the early eighties, whether it's like Motley or, you know, Dokken and Rat and all these guys, like they, they consistently point to Van Halen and having seen them when they were a club band and on the strip and just what they were able to achieve. But I think one of the interesting things that the, the book shows is that Van Halen, rather than being kind of the, the leader of, of, what became this movement, they're actually an anomaly, an anomaly because they get signed. And I think Wild McBrown from Dawkins says he's like, because Wild McBrown was, was on the scene at that time too. He's playing with George Lynch in a band called The Boys and they would play with Van Halen. Um, but he's like, you would think that Van Halen gets signed and they explode so big that the door, that door would open and 10 other Van Halens would walk through. He's like, that's not what happened. Actually, Van Halen walked through that door and then the door slammed shut. And so what you see after that in the late seventies is this music is really, no one wants to have anything to do with it. Rudy Sarzo from Quiet Riot says that they were just seen as dinosaur music. And that's, that was really the truth. It's like the labels just wanted, um, they just wanted new wave bands and punk bands and all of that, all of that type of thing. And nobody wanted to touch this stuff until years later until 1983 really when quiet riot breaks through with with metal health um but so there were a lot of years in there at the beginning of the 80s where i mean like you're saying it's not just like the the calendar turned to 1980 and like bam here we are it's like for the first few years of the 80s like nobody you know nobody in the industry would have put their money on this being the music that come to define the decade as far as rock is concerned well when you say 1983 i think like oh mtv right i mean that's right around when i start to think about mtv mm-hmm. and maybe in retrospect as you were putting this together and it's in the book as well um do you think the scene would have exploded the same way it did without mtv i mean a lot of these guys they look great in these videos on tv you know the the scene comes alive in a way uh in pictures and um i don't know do you think mtv really helped to to blow it up to the level it got do you think it would have been the same without mtv 
Tommy. I don't think it would have been. I mean, probably some of these bands would have existed, but it wouldn't. It would. It couldn't have been the same thing. You know, one thing that Rich and I have discussed is like these guys, and like what you said, it came alive visually. These guys were ready for MTV. They like just walked through the door once it was open. They had been doing. You know, one of sort of the tropes in our book that everybody says, like, it's like, I went to see a band, like, could be Cinderella, could be, you know, Guns N' Roses, could be any of these. Guys. I went to see them at this little club, and it was like they were doing an arena show. You know, <laughs> and that's something you hear over and over in this band, in this um, book. And it's because these guys, the, these bands were aspiring to that and, like, practicing that and, acting as if the whole time. And so when the opportunity did come to have, you know, make videos and stuff, they weren't conflicted about it. They weren't like, oh, how do we project? How do we, you know, how do we come off as, as exciting and, and, and make people like psych when they see us? They, they had already been doing it. And so look, when MTV puts that Quiet Riot video on, and, and I'm stealing one of Rich's lines, but you know, and you have to think about it. Like no one, none of these bands were getting time. When Come On Feel the Noise comes out, like Metal Health, the album that it's on, knocks synchronicity out of the number one slot. Like it's it's ginormous. It's like, you know, I think it sells like something like 4 million copies. And the Come On Feel the Noise video, it's just really a performance video, not even a particularly like high budget one. It was just that like, this band was so good at projecting like their, their thing. I mean, they also had a great song, but the two of them together is what put this over the top. It's the being able to see the band and hear them. And I mean, the same is true for Twisted Sister who come right up behind them. I mean, they're creating like these mini movies with their, you know, with their videos and they can pull it off. And it's just visually so captivating so I don't, th- and as the decade goes on, obviously with dial in TV and Headbangers Ball and stuff like, it's this massive delivery mechanism turning these bands not only into successful bands in terms of record sales, but like bonafide celebrities. So I don't think you have this at all without MTV. I mean, you have, do you, does hard rock continue? Yes, because hard rock, I think will always continue, but I don't think it would have become, uh, to steal another phrase of riches, the dominant like rock form of the decade. That was a marriage of these bands being both musically and visually exciting and, and having MTV able to show you know that to every kid in America who had cable, which Rich, is not all of them, but most. Rich, if Tom didn't steal all your phrases and you want to add anything, you can go ahead. <laughs> no, I mean he he stole everything I would have said. No, he I mean he he basically hits the nail on the head. And it's like, yes, I mean what what are you saying? It's like, yeah, the, the music probably would have existed and probably would have been popular. It would have probably also have been nothing like what it was had MTV not come into play right at the same time. If Quiet Riot was the birth, was Appetite for Destruction the peak? Um, yeah, I, I think you could probably make that, that argument. I think one of, one of the things actually that comes up a little bit in the book, and, and now I'm going to 
steal a point that Tom actually usually makes, um, which is that whether or not appetite was the peak, I think what you start to see is that when we get to the part of the book where everyone's talking about grunge coming in and, and Nirvana, you know, supposedly killing hair metal and all that, um, there is, there, there's a viewpoint to be taken that actually the shift happens with Guns N' Roses and, you know, their look and their sound and even like Slash's guitar style being the thing that really shifts everything sure. um, from, you know, the sort of hot shot shredder type thing, which obviously still exists after 1987, but you have a lot of people wanting to be the bluesy, low slung, Les Paul type of player that Slash is more than necessarily wanting to be George Lynch. Um, you have guys, and again, this is something that Tom says, where they see the way, you know, Guns N' Roses are dressed, and, you know, they might have not liked having to have their hair all teased up and spend hours putting their stage costume together, and they're like, oh, I can just wear, uh, you know, tight jeans and cowboy boots and a ripped T-shirt, and, like, that will make me look cool, too. You know, you can, and you can see that shift happen after 1987, a lot more denim comes into the scene and like cowboy <laughs> hats and cowboy boots and that sort of Guns N' Roses look. And there are a lot more people playing like Slash and doing the sort of, you know, bluesy, like B-L-O-O-Z-Y, like type of hard rock sound that that Guns N' Roses really, you know, did so well. So, yeah. And, and on top of that, like Appetite for Destruction is obviously one of the best selling records and one of the most enduring records of that error but beyond being beyond being that the popularity of it it's just they they really did signal this shift and that is probably the first signal of the shift that is about to come in a much bigger way a few years later sportscaster here with tom Bujor and richard beanstock we're talking about nothing but a good time the uncensored history of the 80s hard rock explosion i want to ask you guys a little bit about skid row because they're one of my favorite bands uh, from the era, and they're really interesting in the book, and they're really interesting in general because, you know, when I think about bands that I like from this era, they had their peak, and then they had their time where they couldn't get booked, and then they had this other time where, you know, concerts were playing live was big, and people would come see them, and these bands would reunite. They'd find a way to get the core back together, get the guys that sell the tickets together and like Skid Row is like the one band or one of the bands that just has never done this. I love the three albums. You know, I was hung in there even with subhuman race. I remember in high school, we used to play beat yourself blind for people and tell them that it was a new Alice in Chains <laughs> song to try to throw the sense off that it was Skid Row. Um, so I liked all the records and I, I, I obviously wish that, you know, to me, no offense to Rachel and, Snake and anyone else in the band, but to me, it's not Skid Row without Sebastian Bach. Um, I think I've seen them one time without him, and they lost my interest pretty quickly. But they're really interesting in general. Let's start kind of from the beginning a little bit with them, and they're kind of tie into Bon Jovi. And, you know, like Sebastian Bach is singing at a wedding, and it's just kind of a wild story in the book, kind of the, the evolution of, of them going from. You know, guys in a store in New Jersey, I forgot what you said, the Garden State something or other, to, you know, opening for Bon Jovi on this tour and then Guns N' Roses and having number one records and things like that. Um, is there anything specifically interesting to you, Tom, about Skid Row and their story specifically? 
Well, I mean, to get to your point of uh, even about them not touring with Sebastian, you have to remember like what sort of like he was, you know, he's the last piece of the puzzle. And so yep. he's not part of the gang, right? you know? Um, and it's funny. One of the things I point to in terms of the ambition and sort of like of, of these bands and desire to get it right is if you, you can go on YouTube and listen and find Skid Row's demos with their previous singer, this guy, Matt Fallon, um, who we discuss in the book. And it's the same songs. And Matt Fallon can, like, sing. You know what I mean? Like, the dude right. can sing. Yeah. Um, but when, when Doc McGee sees uh, Skid Row open really early on before they have the deal, because Snake, Sabo, his friends bon jo- with John Bon Jovi, uh, Skid Row get a couple opening gigs for Bon Jovi. And after, like, one of the gigs, Doc McGee comes back and t- is talking to Skid Row. He's like, you guys are great. You got to lose the thing. Right, and so they go on this epic search to find to find Sebastian Bach, and you know, in some people's minds that might be like ruthless, but I think in all of the bands that in our book, it's a recurring theme of like you keep going and you don't take any prisoners until you found the right band with the right chemistry, and those are the bands that we talk about in the book, and then there's a million other bands that we're not talking about because they didn't make it because they didn't lose the lose the dead weight you know um but from the second he walks in when the second that that uh sebastian mock walks in to the picture like this like literally they fly him down from canada (laughs) after having gotten word through bon jovi's parents that this kid is good he walks into snake stable's house he's like hey i'm sebastian i've got a nine inch cock and like literally Snake's mom is sitting right there. And like that's where it begins. Do you know what I mean? Right. Like that's where the story starts. So like right. I think that they were ir- probably irritated with him immediately. And look, if if he was a kid now, he probably would be diagnosed with ADD or oppositional yeah, probably, or whatever. Yeah. Even when you talk to him now, I mean he's mellowed, but he he's he is who he is. And that's what made him famous, but it also means that it's probably not that easy, um, you know, to be in a room with him. And the whole story of Skid Row is one of these difficult ones because you can't, like, you can't reverse engineer and go back and, and Monday morning quarterback. Like, he was the best looking dude in this genre and also maybe one of the best three singers in the genre what, and an Doc, incredible front man. Doc McGee said he looked like you know, Texas. So like, right? Does Skid Row happen without him? Probably not. So right. like the level of resentment of these four guys who have been slogging it out for years. And then this kid comes in and he's on the cover of Rolling Stone alone. And, you know, and I've said this and I'm sorry, I'm rambling rich, but I'll, and I'll wrap it up quickly, but, I said that I said this in an interview, but like really, what happens to Sebastian Bach is like a psychological experiment. I mean, the kid is eighteen years old or nineteen years right. old, and he's suddenly the singer in the best-selling new artist in Atlantic Records history. He's on the cover of Rolling Stone. He's opening for Bon Jovi. You know, he like that would like you put any eighteen-year-old in that situation. And I think it's going to create ego issues. Yeah. You know, I bet. so I think that it's, it, you know, 
I think that their story is one where you can see by the end why maybe there's just too much water under the bridge or like, you know, that there's just not enough money to pull it together. It's interesting. It's really skid row. And like, I mean, the only other band that hasn't been able to pull it together in, in that way where there's probably that much money on the table is like the Smiths, you know, like sure. bands that just right. can't pull it together. It blows my mind because you, you would think it's like, you, you really don't need to be around each other that much more than the hour you play or whatever. I mean, the way, like, you could work it out. I, I, I don't know if I want to give the other guys credit for staying away this long and knowing what they've passed up or, you know, almost question their sanity. But I understand the, <laughs> I understand, like, reading the book, you know, like, I thought I knew how out of his mind he was. And I read his book, you know, but then you forget about, like, and then we had the one night where he, you know, he's in the crowd with the bottles and then, you know, he threw the bottle and hit the person. And then it was the T-shirt on MTV and then it was this and it was that. And I can imagine that years of that run thin. And Tom, like you said, it doesn't seem like he's that different. You know, like just if you follow him on social media, you can just see that kind of energy just in the way he interacts with people. You know, just the way he argues with Eddie Trunk about CDs versus vinyl. You know, it just so I get it. What were you going to add to that, Rich? Uh, well, I think that, you know, what you're saying is, yeah, that's, that's all the case. But I, I would also say that when it comes to Sebastian, I mean, you know, that was part of also what they wanted from him. I mean, he was, he was sort of marketed as this bad boy. And it wasn't, you know, it wasn't fabricated. Like, this is really who he was. Like, he was a loose cannon and not only in the negative sense, it's like he was just, you know, he had, he was like the youth gone wild, you know, even sure. the song existed before him, but that was the image that they were putting forth. And he just perfectly encapsulated this and it wasn't a put on, like it was there. And so it was this double-edged sword. And, and, and I think maybe it's even, I mean, Sebastian actually is the one that, you know, very, with a lot of like real sort of clarity says that in the book, he's like, this is what you wanted from me. You know, he's like, this is what everyone was looking for and expected. And then I gave it to you. And like this, and now, now I'm the bad guy. Like he didn't, he didn't quite understand. And he's kind of right in that respect. But then, you know, the flip side of it is like, yeah, even the things you're bringing up, the t-shirt and the bottle in the, in the audience and like, you know, all of that kind of stuff, like, you know, fighting with Bon Jovi with John Bon Jovi backstage, like, this is all stuff that happens. And this is all stuff that happens in like the span of like 12 months, you know? <laughs> yeah. like right when the band right. is starting out, yeah. much less even before that, the whole, I mean, one of my favorite stories in the book and we, you guys were talking about a little bit is that first night where Sebastian joins the band and he comes into the house and he talks about his nine inch cock to snake's mom and all that. But it's just this series of events that happens over the course of that night ending with, not one, but two fights that the band gets in and Sebastian specifically out in New Jersey, that it's just like, you know, that's night one. That's like the first four hours with this guy. <laughs> and it's completely insane. So it's like, they knew what they were getting. I think somebody else in the book says that too. I think it's Jack Ponte, who's a songwriter. He's like, they knew exactly what they were getting with Sebastian. And, you know, that's what they wanted. But, you know, they also, the, the flip side of that, they really got it. And it just got too out of hand. So as far as what happens with the band now, I just think, yeah, it's 
there's probably too much that has gone on for them to really come back together. And the other thing that the book shows is like, they were never really friends to begin with. Sure. You know, the yeah, first, oh, they're talking about sure. the first night, yeah. what was going down. So it's like, it was this great partnership and it was magic musically. But if you don't even have that friendship basis with the guy from day one, I mean, it, you're not going to have it 40 years later. And I mean, those guys can't be, it, Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Tom. You go ahead. No, I mean, I think all, all, what Rich is saying is totally true. And it's like, I think it's, it is like when this thing, like, well, that's what you wanted from me. Like, as fans, as kids, like, I knew that, like, you kind of, like, like, Sebastian is one, like, Axel is another one in our book where you can tell, like, he's not, like, it, there, it is not a stance. Like, if you piss Axel Rose off, he'll fuck you up. And, like, the same with Vince Neil. Like, if you were to, like, really, you know, Vince Neil would cold cock you in a second, you know? And, like, I think there's a certain element, you know, for better or for worse, and I'm not excusing anything any of these guys ever did that was, you know, horrible and, and, or might've been, you know, involved vehicular manslaughter or whatever, or whatever. But like, there is a certain thing to be said for the rock star frontman who is actually a dangerous, edgy individual. Right. You know, like, he's walking that's the kind walk. Of what we want. Right. He's walking the yeah, walk. Yeah, he's walking the walk. Like yeah. for real. You know, like and so like that's like and I think that comes across. And it comes across through, you know, and a lot of them end up dead for that reason too. But like that is I think something that was communicated with sort of the great front men of this time. Like some of them were like you know, people who were like you know, on not on the edge of sanity, but like edgy people, you know, you wouldn't. So, and so I, I do agree that like, you can't have, you can't have everything. You can't have like the team player, sane guy who's going to help you load the van and like this, that, the other thing. And then you also want him to have like this ego and be up on stage, take no prisoners and like, you know, destroying a 20,000 person audience because he can project that personality out you know yeah two more quick things about this and we'll finish up but like first of all sebastian box i'd be one of the most blessed guys ever i mean what mcgee says in the book he looks like miss texas you know he sings amazingly (laughs) you know supposedly he's got a nine inch cock i mean he's got it all this guy i gotta say that uh, but uh, so he says yeah so he says i mean in all the boxes he is he is he's got it's looking good for him um, and I, I actually, I met him one time. This goes right to the nine inch cock thing. I met him one time. He, there, he was playing a solo show. <laughs> he was playing a solo show in Buffalo. And, uh, my buddy at, in college, I had arranged an interview with, with him. And, uh, he asked me to come along. So he knew I knew the band and everything. And we're sitting in his dressing room behind this like small club and outside of Buffalo called the fun house. And, uh, he's getting ready for the show. It's me a couple hours before. And we're talking about whatever. I think it was around the time that. There were some rumors he might be the singer in Van Halen. This must have been right before Sharon joined, maybe, or maybe after Sharon left. I don't know. But um, so we're just sitting there talking. You know, he's being Sebastian Bach, and his wife walks in, and um, she brings him some chicken. And there's this little uh, a bathroom, like a bathroom in the dressing room. And she goes in there, and the door has a full-length mirror on the door. And she opens that door, and she goes in there and takes gets totally naked. And... And I mean, everyone in the room can see her. And, you know, I, I think I was maybe 19 and I was looking at her and Sebastian saw me looking at her and he looked at me and I go, man, your wife is, is 
it's pretty hot. And he's like, well, duh, like, that's why she's my wife. It's like, okay, <laughs> I got it. I get it. So, but like the only other thing I'll say about it is it's got to be frustrating for these guys, you know, <laughs> when that out, al- when the Skid Row album turned 30 or whatever it was, like I went and I watched Sebastian play those songs in two different places and it was awesome both nights. And I have no idea what those guys did, if they did anything. I don't know if they were the ones behind, you know, getting that digital re-release out with like a live concert at the end, which was underwhelming. I don't know. But I know what Sebastian did. And I went to it and it was awesome. You know, so I'd like for him to get together, but I don't know if I need to. I don't know. I mean, the Sebastian shows are just fine for me. Yeah. And that must be just like what you guys were saying. This is frustrating for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because they know. Look, and, and I mean, we could certainly talk about Sebastian Bach all day. But the the you know even what Tom was saying earlier about the original guy Matt Fallon, it's like you have a guy Matt Fallon, very handsome man, great head of hair, great voice. But you know, Mike Tramp was a handsome man with a great head of hair and a great voice, and so was Stevie Rachel, and so was a million of these guys. But Axl Rose was something different, and David Lee Roth is something different, and Vince Neil is something different, and Sebastian Bach is something different. And this is like, if you want to be on that level, like, that's you need something different, and you need you need something to transcend all these other guys that are just good at everything. And like that was Sebastian Bach at that time. Yeah. Again, the book is called "Nothing But a Good Time: The Uncensored History." of the 80s hard rock explosion and it's over 500 pages so i just tried to pick out a few different things that we could chat about and i knew i wanted to talk about skid row and sebastian for sure before i let you guys go let's maybe get out of here on this and and do something fun uh what about the what's the mount rushmore of the music that makes up this book like maybe what's the maybe a better way to put it is what's your what's your all-star band drawing from 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 these bands give me you know you can you can do a you can do a five piece you know two guitars a bass a singer and a drum <laughs> drawn from these one band each and then i'll tell you whose band is better go ahead tom wow hey now hey now all right <laughs> well even though it would probably drive the other this would this would musically this would not work okay but i think it would be but they would also be a great comedy team so i put on guitar, dueling lead guitars. I put in um, C.C. DeVille okay. and Vito Brada. Oh. <laughs> so, because they'll just be like, no, you take this. I'm taking this solo. No, you take this solo. Fuck you, buddy. Just for the so comedy. That's my, that's my yeah. guitar team. That's my guitar team. On vocals, I'm putting... I'm going to do the vocal. Who am I putting on vocal? I'm putting Janie Lane, oh. who's the great underrated songwriter and singer of this era. Sure. Um, he, he is one of the guys with the best voices who didn't do falsetto stuff. I love his voice. I love his songwriting. So he's the band leader <sighs> on drums. I'm going with Tommy Lee because he's just like, he's, I don't know. He's just the, the, the most swinging sure. of all these guys. Um, with a close second of uh, Bobby Rock 
from who is in Nelson and Vinnie Vincent Invasion because she's also hilarious, and I want like the I want the backstage to be as fun as on stage. And so then I got bass left. For bass, I will go because every time I listen to Hair Nation in the car, and um, I'm listening, and there's something weird with Hair Nation where it's sort of co- like their, their data compression where it collapses the the sides, so you don't hear the guitars as much as you should. So you hear a lot of drums and bass. I'm putting Juan Crucier from Rat on bass because oh. bass playing is wildly underrated. So there you go. You got Brada. Deville, Crucier, uh, you got real spread out. You spread it out. I like that. You spread yeah. it out. That's my band. Right. And probably they would just get into a room and argue and no music would ever be made. But that's my, that's my dream team. And the nice thing here is if your co-author, <laughs> if your co-author goes Bach on vocals, you at least a guy, you got a guy in the band who can challenge him cockwise. So that's good. Uh, with, <laughs> all right. Well, what do you got? Yeah, I think, um, you know, if I'm going to start with guitarists as well, I mean, I, I, my first thought was, was C.C. DeVille as well, but maybe I'll, I'll leave him just for Tom's band. Um, but you can never <laughs> go wrong with having, you can never go wrong with having C.C. DeVille in your band. Him so and his I'm sandwich go board. With, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly, yeah. yeah. Um, let's say Chris Holmes from Wasp. Okay. Um, because he would just be, Endless entertainment, and let's let's pair him up. Let's pair him up with Mick Mars. Just so your 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 guitar team is really sort of a, a a creep show in a way, but just a pretty awesome one at that, um, and pretty gnarly tones to go around. So that is, so we don't really have a shredder there, but that's okay. We have a lot of attitude. Um, I am going to go with Sebastian as my singer because I think I mean we've we've said it, and I've heard other people just say it. Like if you were going to create an 80s hard rock singer in a lab like it would be sebastian bach to a t um so sebastian will be my front man i am going to steal tommy lee from tom for the only reason that well two reasons one he is a great drummer and two he actually is sort of sebastian bach on drums right in a lot of ways very similar the attitude <laughs> yeah. the look to apparently the, the size of his cock right um we got proof so of that one. Drummer. We got proof so of that one. Have them yeah. in the front and the back. And then on bass, I mean, you know, if, if Tom's going to have Juan Crucier sort of dancing back and forth across the stage, I'm, I'm going to take Kip Winger and have him do oh. likewise. Oh, right. Well, you know what you could do, Rich? If you want Juan Crucier. Oh, trade. Crucier, we got to trade. I'll give you Juan Crucier and I'll take, <laughs> and I'll take Cher. I'll take Cher Ross from Vixen as my alternate, just because just to, to because she's actually the, I realize maybe the sickest basis of them all, and just to actually diversify my team. So I'll give you oh, Juan Crucier. I don't want to be responsible for firing Juan Crucier uh, like four minutes after hiring him, though. <laughs> all right. Well, then if I take Juan Crucier, I think I'm actually going to have to bump. Kip Winger oh, no. from bass to Kip's... vocal. So that okay. I still have, I have the double like, <laughs> dancing guys on stage. Um, you know, and then Sebastian, I guess, will just be an alternate. Well, that's not going to work for Sebastian. <laughs> that's that's going to be, no, no. that's going to be a tough Sebastian sell. Will certainly throw a fit. Yeah. That's going to be a tough sell. Look, I, I don't have the heart to pick, pick a, a bass. They're both great. I like how you guys spread it out too, over the, 
lots of different bands represented, which I think is, you know, sometimes, which I think is a, a moral of the book too. Sometimes you can get guilty of just narrowing this whole genre down to three or four of the super heavyweights. Um, but the reality is there's tons of depth in the genre too. So many great bands that maybe we don't think of as much as we should. You know what? Very, very last thing. I'm sorry I thought about this, but, and I think I, you mentioned it on Trunk Show. What's up with John Bon Jovi? Is he like, he, is he the guy who just, I don't know, like he, I think Howard Stern inducted Bon Jovi into the Hall of Fame and Howard Stern's like this too, where they want, they want to be as famous as they are for what they're famous for, but they want us to forget what that is and just pay attention to what they're doing now or something. Like what's with this guy? He doesn't think Bon Jovi, you know, in the slippery one wet air is cool anymore or something or what's going on. You guys get a sense of this? Cause it annoys me for some reason. <laughs> no, nobody uh, wants to get on his bad side, right? Me. <laughs> no, it, look, look he, Bon Jovi is one of the people, I think we put one request in, um, for him for an interview and we knew we wouldn't get it. Um, and I think yeah. it's a shame because actually when you read our book, he's one of the dudes, you know, he's sort of there anyway, because right. he's so involved in, you know, Cinderella's career, Skid Row's career, and then in the, the Moscow concert and every band open for him. Bon Jovi comes off better than almost anyone in this book. You know, people are just like, he was opening him for them was the best. They asked, you have enough stage, you have enough lights, you need more PA, you know, giving bands a leg up. Here are the other things. So I think he comes off actually um, really well in this book. Um, I think that for the bands that made it out of this thing alive, um, you can't, I don't think you can really overstate how bad like the nineties were for most of these guys. You know what I mean? Like, sure. Even for if Bon Jovi, one of these bands. I'm saying for no, for for like for any of the bands of this era, the '90s were horrible. Except for Bon Jovi, he managed right. to you know, sort of like navigate his way out of it. But I think that once you've been through that and you kind of like dodged the bullet, I can see why. Okay, you know, I see he, what you're saying. He, yeah. He could, so that's my thing. Is like I think that he probably. You know, he's like, I have managed to sort of, and to say transcend, I know it's sort of demeaning the other bands, but, you know, like, they can still play, they, he's become like a full-on classic rock act. Right. Um, and so I, I sort of get it. I mean, I don't understand, I don't know exactly the psychology behind um, why he doesn't want to talk about this stuff. I think he has come so far that it would probably be, you know, um, awesome if he did. And if he did um, do it, I think, you know, if there was one interview, like if like if we were doing the paperback and Bon Jovi was like, hey, you know, I, I read your book and it was awesome and I'd love to do an interview for it, I'm, you know, it'd be great. So, I, But I think it's like, look, to each his own and he doesn't need to talk about this stuff and he sort of escaped somewhat unscathed so that's my take on it i don't know rich sometimes has a different take on things what do you think <laughs> yeah. i i think that that's 
that's the case, you know, and for some of these guys, it's like you could, you could transcend it. And that means that you could feel okay with talking about it because you don't feel so pigeonholed by it or the opposite feeling. And maybe this is the way he feels. It's just like, he really has to continue to consciously stay away from it. I mean, even when I mean, John Mondoe doesn't do a lot of interviews anyway, but even when he does, like he's not talking about, the 80s he's certainly right, it's like, like football never, or something or i can't recall an interview where he's talking about his tour with rats you know like it's sure. not something that comes up right in conversation with him anymore but that said like we didn't really try that hard for these reasons and maybe he has since seen the book and it's feeling very sad that he wasn't interviewed for it i don't know i think i'm on to something with Probably that not. with that howard stern thing it's like <laughs> give me the respect of how popular i am for this thing but don't ask me about that thing because i'm on to this now I don't know. Yeah. Uh, okay. The book again. It's called "Nothing But a Good Time: The Uncensored History of '80s Hard Rock Explosion." It's obviously available wherever you buy books, or if you want to do digital, you can do that as well. Um, you can follow Rich on Twitter. He's at Rich underscore B I E N S T O C K. You can find him there if you want to follow him. Uh, Tom, I know you have one, but I can't find it quick enough to read it. So, do you want to read it? Uh, it's at it's a for, it's actually for my studio, so it's at Nuthouse NJ. That's right. Yep. Okay. Anything else you guys want to mention or plug or promote or anything like that before I let you go? I don't think so. I think you. I think we've been very thorough. Thank you, and thank you very much for uh, you know taking the time to talk to us. No, thank you guys because I had a blast promoting it and, yeah. and reading it. I love talking about music like this and. Thank you. Thank you for all the time and letting me do it with you guys. I really appreciate it. I'm so glad the book has found success and I hope it finds more. And I can't wait for the next the Netflix movie someday. You know, if you guys want to be like the dirt, that I think that's the next step. We'll have the nothing but a good time movie on Netflix. That'd be fun. It could it very happen. well be happening. So yeah. Awesome. <laughs> can't wait. All, all right, right you, you guys be good. Thank you. Thank you. Huge thanks to Tom Bujor and Richard Beanstock and Neil Best for being on the podcast today. Don't forget you can find today's podcast and all 10 years of the Sportscasters on my SoundCloud page. It's soundcloud.com slash sports dash casters. You can also find us on Twitter at sports underscore casters. You can email me, the sportscasters at gmail.com. I respond to every email. And you can also, on my SoundCloud page, find the 24-inch podcast, my new show with the always awesome Hollywood Dave Rollins. Uh, That podcast, you can listen to it the same way you listen to this one. You don't have to do anything different. And if you're not interested, I apologize. You have to delete it uh, when it comes on to your podcatcher. Uh, But you can follow that on Twitter. Uh, It's at the number two, the number four, the word inch, and the word podcast. So at 24-inch podcast. Email is the same thing, 24inchpodcast at gmail.com. And you can find us on Facebook. Uh, we got a group there, which is awesome. Just search 24inch podcast. And you can follow us on Instagram. That's Dave's project that he's killing. And he's the number two, the number four, underscore inch, underscore podcast on Instagram.
Uh, check out our friend uh, Peter Winston. His show is called Greetings from Allentown. It's the number one wrestling podcast featuring one human being in the world. Uh, at GF Allentown Pod is the Twitter handle there where you can get all the information about his work. He was at WrestleMania 37, uh, but don't think that means you'll be listening to content about Bunny Bear or the, the Bad Bunny or whatever the guy's name is. Uh, it's a throwback, Laps Fan Podcast as well. And his latest episode was on Shotgun Saturday Night from 1998, little Attitude Era from Peter. And then on the weekends or whenever he can get to it, GFA Live uh, with Keithy, which is up to 53 episodes already, uh, which seems insane. But I guess it started when the pandemic did, and we're a year, in a year into that, so it makes sense. Uh, but check out. Uh, check out Peter's work there. If you're a big Avalanche fan, uh, at a dater on Twitter is the way to go there as we get closer to the playoffs, and they will surely be a big part of it. That top end of that division is super hot. Um, I think the like Golden Knights are on like a nine-game winning streak. The Avs are like eight and one, and the Wild are right there as well. And those three teams have absolutely lapped the field as uh, St. Louis and... Um, Colorado will fight for the last playoff spot in that division, but man, that'll be a really interesting division final when it's two of presumably two of um, Colorado, Vegas, and Minnesota. That will be a great series. All right. One last thing from me today, and I am a fan of Conrad Thompson, I suppose. He's a genius when it comes to selling and marketing a podcast. You know, nobody is better than him at that, especially in the wrestling world. And he was on this podcast, and it's interesting because he didn't promote it because I called him on the way he was treating fans who had subscribed to Bruce Pritchard's Patreon, so I know he didn't promote it because he didn't want to draw attention to it. Nonetheless, besides the point, I was uh, scrolling Instagram today, and I stumbled upon a post that he had, uh, which was a picture from inside WrestleMania. It looks like the one that was in Dallas, as I can see a Dallas Cowboys banner in the background, and he's sitting in his seat. And next to him is his daughter, who's out of her seat, uh, just cheering. And the caption says this, Man, wrestling can be really cool. Nothing beats being able to share something you love with your kid. And it got to me. It got to me. You guys know that I can be, I can be mushy when it comes to my daughter. I'm talking about my daughter and talking about being a dad. And I know I've said before on this show that it's, the best thing I've ever been in my life, a dad. And someone who just absolutely loved being a brother. I never thought you could top that, but being a dad has. And getting to be both, the combination's unbelievable. But I've been thinking a lot about, since I've seen that picture, thinking a lot about all the things I love that I get to share with Paula and how amazing that is. And now that started as a brother, right? Like one of the great things about being a brother was sharing my passions with my younger brothers. 
you know, uh, my brother Anthony, his life is in hockey. <laughs> Speaking of the devil, Paul just walked in to the room and uh, dressed up like a frog. What's going on there? Now go to your mic real quick. I got my costume for recital. That's your dance recital costume? <laughs> yeah, I'm from my green frog costume. <laughs> You're dressed like a frog? Yeah. What's the dance about? Frogs. Well, like, what, what? Is there a song for it? Who let the frogs out? Who let the frogs out? Oh, my God. That's awesome. That's such a great costume, baby. You look amazing. (laughs) All right. So as I was saying, anyway, uh, as I was saying, so, you know, showing showing things to my brothers that I love, my passions, like Pearl Jam sticks out, you know, going to my first show with the first show that Anthony went to, to with me in September of 2005. And seeing his eyes light up when release started, you know, it changed those concerts for me, which were already like my favorite thing. And then I think to this, you know, in 2010, I took Greg to his first concert in Pittsburgh, got him hooked, took my mom in 2009, been going to concerts with Tammy, Pearl Jam concerts with Tammy since 2003. And, you know, I think about this night in 2018 in Chicago Saturday night at Wrigley Field just a beautiful night a perfect day it was a perfect day and I was there at Pearl Jam with my my wife and my two brothers and it was a great show and it was a beautiful night in a beautiful historic venue and it was perfect and sort of this thing I'm talking about was born in that you know sharing hockey and Pearl Jam and Whatever else with my brothers, I'm now doing it as a father with my daughter. And it's amazing. To, one of our favorite things to do is go to that 80s toy shop in Tonawana. Shout out to, uh, to Dennis. But to go to a retro 80s toy store, Paul and I go. We spend an hour in that place walking around. And it's funny because anything in there, to her, it's from the 80s. So like, even if they have new toys, they had this like LOL surprise toy. And she's like, Dad, they had LOL in the 80s. Like, yeah, but we spend so much time in there and we see the things that we love together, like the Karate Kid or, you know, our ultimate thing is looking for 18. Oh, now she's back with her other costume. And this is a pretty pink one. Mm -hmm. Tell us about this one there, girl. This is for Uptown Girl. Uptown Girl by Billy Joel? Yeah. We've been living with an Uptown Girl. Yeah. And this is a long boa. Oh, you got a boa? Yeah. It's like the Hulkster has boas. Yeah, but yellow ones sometimes. But you got a pink one, huh? Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. You look beautiful, baby. <laughs> it's ticklish. It is. That's a beautiful costume. Thanks. When's the recital? Uh, couple weeks? Couple weeks. Oh, I can't wait. Mm-hmm. That's going to be awesome. Uh-huh. Yeah. I'm just telling the people about how, how much I love, like, watching wrestling with you and watching, like, Karate Kid and... A-team episodes that we watch together. And the newest thing has been rock and roll, right? We listen to rock and roll together. I got Paula hooked on Van Halen, right? And she loves Wolfie and can't wait for the Mammoth record. And she's been listening to Pearl Jam, Given to Fly was her favorite. And I just can't wait for the day where I can take her to a Pearl Jam concert, a wrestling match, which she wants to go to. 
you know, and just to be able to see these things that I've loved for all these years and to see that make my daughter happy and to light up her eyes. It's just like so amazing. Paul, what are some of your favorite things that daddy has shown you over the years? Like what are your karate kid? Karate kid. Ben Halen, those things. Yeah. Yeah. And do you like watching wrestling with dad? We have a lot of fun doing that. She's also stuffing her face with a donut right now, so she can only talk like in between bites. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, you know, just that's all I wanted to say. You know, I just wanted to say like, what an amazing thing in life to just share these things I love with her, and it makes me so happy uh, to, you know, play a video game with her, or you know, watch an episode of the A Team. Uh, we just got a uh, we just bought an ebay a um an edition of tv guide with the a team on the cover from 1985 so we wanted to read the article in there and we're doing that at bedtime and it's just roll doll books i was a huge fan of roll doll books as a kid you know we've been reading those together we read the fantastic mr fox and then we read james and the giant peach together it's really just like such an incredible treat you know, it just really is like, as far as life goes, it doesn't get much better uh, than sharing these things with her. You know, and it touches my heart to see her smile in general. But, I mean, it really just touches my heart to see her smile when listening to a Van Halen song or a Pearl Jam song or watching an episode of The A-Team. You know, or playing, getting on the carpet and playing with wrestlers together. Shout out to Calvin Crowell who really hooked us up and got our collection of wrestlers started with a bunch of uh, Hasbros. You know, and to sit and play with those with her, it's just, it just touches my heart. So thanks to Conrad Thompson uh, for that picture and that caption and giving me that thought. And thanks to you out there for listening to the Sportscasters. Hopefully this is a treat to you to have a second one so quickly after the last one. And I'll be back this week, later in the week. Uh, with Dave in an episode of this 24-inch podcast. God bless.